All of the opinions expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not intended to offend or disrespect any of the parties involved. We're just two people who know how to research stuff on Google and talk about it. We don't have any legal education and therefore shouldn't be taken too seriously. So don't try to sue us. We couldn't afford to pay you anyway. Additionally, this podcast is about murder and will probably contain many other adult themes. So if that's not your thing, probably going to have a bad time. So listen at your own risk. This is the part where we shamelessly plug our social media that I can never remember. Take it away, Mike. So don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at allegedly underscore pod. Find us on Facebook at that allegedly podcast and email us at that allegedly podcast at gmail.com. So pull up a chair, grab a snicky snack, and enjoy this week's episode of Allegedly. Allegedly. Two best friends and true crime with Mike and Heather, it's Allegedly time. Welcome back to Allegedly, the show that will make you think twice about getting married. No matter how rich they are. I'm Heather. And I'm Mike. And this week, we are digging deep into the Fort Bragg murders of Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen McDonald. We dig deep every week. I know, but this one, you know, we took a couple of weeks off from we recording because yeah. we, you know, we were ahead. You guys won't notice. Right. <laughs> but we, but, I would like to say we feel refreshed. We do not. We do not because <laughs> we really needed, it was like two weeks or three weeks it's that we like went without recording weeks, yeah. anything. And we have needed all of that time yes. to really dig into this one. There's so much. It's so messy. Yeah. Yeah. They all are though. Yeah, but this one just seems like, in particular, like we were just saying to each other before we sat down yeah, and got this... started, like, I still don't feel ready for this. And we right. have spent more time researching this case than even we spent researching yeah. the Jean Benet case. We've read books, watched movies, documentaries. There is actually, like, everything online for this case. Yeah. So, I mean, all of the documents and things like that, actual handwritten, scanned documents and trial transcripts and all kinds of stuff... Still can't figure it out, so. So I think, for the sake of time, we're going to get right into this. dive right in. Dive, dive right in. Okay, great. So uh, I guess we'll start out with uh, the main player in all of this, which is Jeffrey McDonald. So Dr. Dr. Jeffrey McDonald. Jeffrey McDonald. I'm not going to call him doctor. (laughs) Jeffrey Robert McDonald was born in Queens, New York on October 12th, 1943 to parents Robert and Dorothy. He was well-liked, well-rounded, good-looking, smart, athletic. He was voted most popular and most likely to succeed. And I believe he was captain of the football team that I read in one source. Colette Catherine Stevenson was born in, I don't, you might know how to say this, Pachogue, Pachogue. Pachogue. Okay. My mother <laughs> is going to come for you hard because she went to Patchogue Medford High School. They did not call it Patchogue in the documentaries. These people kept calling it Pachogue. Well, because you were probably listening to people from where they ended up in Fort Bragg, probably. North Carolina, trying to pronounce the name of a town on Long Island in yeah, New York. I, I don't know. Anyway, Colette was born in Patchogue, New York, to parents Mildred and Edward Cal Stevenson and had a brother, Robert or Bobby. Uh, interestingly, well, it's interesting, but unfortunate. Her mother, Mildred, had actually birthed two stillborn daughters prior to Colette's birth. And she had named the first two stillborns Colette. So she's actually the third Colette. Okay, isn't that a little morbid, though, that you keep using the same name? A little. Although, I mean, I, I'm sure she was very 
traumatized and how but how married to the name colette do you have to be that you would use that i mean it's a it's a fine name not anything that i'd be that attached to but that just it's very sad it's a little it's sad and a little a little weird but um but yeah she had two stillborn daughters each of them were named colette and finally the Real, well, I say real Colette, but you know what I mean. Finally, uh, our Colette was born, and you know their family was complete. You know the the whole nuclear type family: husband, wife, daughter, son. Everything is great. And then more tragedy hits this family. <laughs> so, in 1955, Mildred comes home and finds her husband Cowles hanging in the garage, and. She claimed that there were no warning signs of depression or any type of behavior that would have, like, alerted her to this. And it's something that even Jeffrey McDonald goes on to say later that Colette didn't talk about, not even to him. That it was just a subject that they didn't approach. Well, you have to think about it, though, too. Like, she says there were no warning signs, but they didn't know then what no. we know now. You know what I mean? They, I think, depression at that point, because that 1955, right? Mm-hmm. At that point, I think depression is kind of like this caricature of what depression can be in the worst case scenario. Yeah. And that's the only thing that they would see as signs of depression at that point. You don't pick up on all of those little subtle things that mm-hmm. we're kind of more aware of now. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, like sleeping a lot. Yeah. Like always wanting to be sleeping they would think somebody was lazy back then. Well, yeah. They're not going to necessarily tie that with mental illness. Well, mental illness wasn't taken too seriously either. And, well, it was and there was a stigma. Like, tab- yeah, like taboo. Yeah, like, so that's why oh. Colette's not talking about it because yeah, that's I mean, how they were raised was that that wasn't something you spoke about. I mean, at this point in time, I think they're still using like electric shock therapy for various things. Oh, well, that so. yeah, that continued well into the 60s. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, the... Cowles had committed suicide, unfortunately. But in the start of 1957, the family finally began to see happier times when a man called Alfred, or he liked to be called Freddie Kassab, began seeing Mildred. Uh, They met at a New Year's Eve party, and then they married about a year later. And Colette took to Freddie right away, and vice versa. He loved her. Uh, She was 13 when Freddie became her stepfather, and she treated him as if... He were her dad. Um, in the various accounts that I read, it was, I don't, I'm sure maybe internally she still loved and missed her father, but for all intents and purposes, he just slid right in there into that, that role for her. Well, right. I mean, you're never going to replace right. your father, you know, but I mean, life continues and yeah. her mother had found someone and it was a good man and someone who was willing to take care of the family yeah. and insert himself in that way. And uh, and like I mentioned before, the Cal- Cal's death and you know suicide wasn't discussed by anyone in the family, not just Colette. But after it happened and she married Freddie, that was done. It was right. he was kind of written out, you know. Um, so Freddie's love for his new family, especially Colette, was evident from the beginning, and his love for her never wavered. Um, as we'll see later, he became a prominent part of the investigation. Um, but fell on both sides at different points. And like oh, you said, we'll yeah. talk more about that. But um, he, a good dude. Yeah. Yeah. So Jeffrey and Colette met in their early high school years and maybe middle school. So Jeffrey McDonald's account is that he met Colette in eighth grade. And 
when I'm looking at their ages and the year and then some states and especially given the decade, it depends as well, like right. what constituted as middle or high school, they were young. Let, let's just say they were like 14 years old around there. They began dating in ninth grade. He recalls it that he had seen Colette walking down the hallway with another blonde and both women were very attractive but Colette kind of like when they walked past him she turned around and kind of like gave him a look and he was smitten mm. <laughs> so you know he pursued her and and she gave in and they had a a brief relationship uh Jeffrey also goes on to describe their breakup in a voice memo to author Joe McGinnis who we'll get to <laughs> he described their breakup as devastating as high school breakups always are always so devastating always. the end of end of the world kind of funny though <laughs> Colette calls him to a boat dock and she's sitting there with her girlfriend like girls do in high school on a boat dock <laughs> well, how often okay, did not, you hang out a on a boat dock but I in just high mean school? like call obviously you can't break up with someone alone you have to have an accomplice so <laughs> she calls him over she and her girlfriend are sitting on this boat dock and she basically just tells him with her friend that she started seeing someone else <laughs> so and Again, in his voice memos, Jeffrey describes the boy that he'd left her or she'd left him for. His name is Dean Chamberlain as, quote, a jerk as far as I was concerned. I always thought he was a nitwit. And if that's not jealousy, I don't know what is. Because... That's like such a classic thing, though. Like, yeah. oh, I'm because I'm the nice guy. And so, of course, I'm going to finish last. And now she goes to this <laughs> jerk instead. So um, there's some uh, toxic masculinity peeking in bit. already. Look at that. Well, there's going to be more of it. So <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey wasn't too, too heartbroken. He describes it as devastating, but um, he was able to quell his depression by betting multiple women. Oh, so, <laughs> yeah. As you do. He, as you as you do. So he'd taken on several lovers throughout his high school years and into his college years. After high school, Colette had begun attending Skidmore College. I did not even look up where Skidmore was. Never heard of it. Right. But she's attending Skidmore College. And Jeffrey, not only was he good looking, athletic, popular, obviously he had it in with the ladies. He was really smart and really dedicated to his schoolwork. And he was given a scholarship to Princeton University. So not just accepted, but given a scholarship. Yeah. So he definitely was smart and definitely earned his place there. And it was at Princeton that Jeffrey made the decision to become a doctor. He recollects that this decision was like abrupt which is kind of weird to me that you've been given a scholarship to Princeton and you had no idea before walking through that door what you wanted to do with your life. <laughs> it just seems like someone, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's pretentious I, to think that someone attending an Ivy League school has no clue what they're going for. Yeah. Like, oh, by the way, I'm going to Harvard, but don't know what to do yet. <laughs> I'll let you know. I feel like you'd want to have something like that in mind when you're going to be spending all that money. But he was given a scholarship, yeah. so who knows? So what know. did he care? I guess not. But he says that, um, yeah, he made the decision to become a doctor. He, I'm going to keep going back to this book that will come into play later, but all of these kind of recollections are made in tape recordings that are put down in a book. And I just wanted to tell you about this really weird one that they don't say in any of the documentaries. So unless you've heard the tape recording or read the book, you wouldn't know. I'm not going to know. He describes that he had a, fa he, 
He had a family doctor, and the only time he ever remembers visiting this doctor was when he, the doctor was examining Jeffrey's mother and made her disrobe in front of Jeffrey. And he describes this in this thing, and I just thought that was... It really stuck out to me as weird. Maybe he did describe other things and it was omitted from the book. I'm, I don't know. But it's just weird. First, why would you tell anybody that? Well, I'm trying to figure out what the context could possibly be. That that's what you're telling this man who's going to... He's describing, I guess, his kind of interactions with doctors in the past. That's not an interaction with a doctor, though, so much as you're like... He says that's the only interaction. Seeing your mother, I don't know. I don't know. Getting a medical it examination. It doesn't come up again, but that's the only interaction he recalls having with his family physician. Moving on. That's gross. <laughs> right. So anyway, he's at Princeton, and uh, it wasn't long after he started his freshman year there that he began to think of good old Colette again. Um, he wrote to her right before his birthday that year, hoping for a return letter, which he would finally receive weeks later. Because Colette knows how to play the game. (laughs) (laughs) But um, she actually was really pleased to get this letter from him. And they both uh, started writing back and forth to each other. And they reminisced about the, you know, the good times they'd had before and decided to see each other again. You know, the good times they had when they were 14. Right. Well, I mean, all the times you have at 14 are good times, really. Yeah. So even, well... For some of us, <laughs> I guess. I, mean, I don't know. For, maybe that's just me pushing 30 <laughs> and being like, God, remember, I wish I was a teenager but again. remember the phases that we went through at 14. We were going through the emo things, stuff that they didn't have. I did not have an emo phase. Oh, I was always a theater kid. Yeah, not I never me. really bordered on that emo. I didn't get into my chemical romance with oh, you. Yeah, I still have all the shirts. I bet you do. <laughs> So anyway, even though Jeffrey and Colette are writing these love letters back and forth and they're really, you know, quite taken with each other again, Jeffrey's still playing around. Hoeing around? Still. He's hoeing. He is hoeing it up. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, he's sleeping around, but he eventually decided that Colette was the one he kind of wanted to become serious with. He describes another serious, like, contender, like an actual girlfriend, not just a woman he was betting. But he basically says that she didn't fit into his Ivy League life. Colette like, didn't fit into no, the other the, other, the girl. other girl. He kind of had like a girlfriend. He was sleeping around, but he had like a another type of person that he was actually seeing regularly. And his friends kind of describe her as being a little dumb. And Colette actually later describes this this woman as kind of dumb as well. Like Colette didn't even see her as a threat is, you know, they kind of all looked down on her. Right. But Jeffrey, and he continues to do this in these recordings, he really, really enjoys describing his sexual escapades with these women and especially his wife. But he basically describes that uh, he just really liked to have sex with this woman. Like, there wasn't really anything else about her. And that eventually, when he started talking to Colette again, that even though she was satisfying him physically, this other woman, that there was something more intriguing about Colette and that she offered him something more intellectually. But not only that, to him, she seemed a little um, naive or inexperienced, and that also intrigued him. So, there's that. I feel very icky. Yes. Um, He's an icky dude. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And he's also very uh, self-absorbed. Oh, yeah. And very concerned with appearances. Like, that makes it pretty clear 
You yeah. know, like, oh, she didn't fit in with the Ivy League crowd. Yeah, he was... Yeah. Yeah, that's that's who he was. But he and Colette eventually kind of rekindle their relationship. They start kind of going steady, as you'd put it back then. And they do all the things. <laughs> <laughs> they start doing mommy and daddy things before they're mommy and daddy. Yes, but that's going to change. Because in the summer of 1963, Colette announced that she was pregnant. So that September, the couple got married, as you do. Um, Jeffrey recalls that he was pretty surprised about how his parents had handled the news um, and how Colette's parents had handled the news. And they were basically given the really the only three choices that you have. Have the baby and get married, give the baby up for adoption, or have an abortion. They said they ruled out adoption immediately. And then they were still toying with the idea of abortion, but after speaking about it, they decided that that wasn't for them. So they decided to go through the married route. And at the time, they both described being really in love with each other. You know, but I mean, they're very young. Did you hear that? It was a shotgun cocking. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, how, yeah, this is very 60s yeah, right now. I, I won't go into detail, but he continues to divulge their sexual encounters uh, in his taped recordings. Because he's gross. Yes, and he also describes their wedding night in detail as well. And But he also describes that they had gotten like a lot of money and that they had sat there counting their money and all of that. It was like $3,000 that they got. And I was like, well, hot damn, that is a lot of money to well, get. Well, no, but like, I mean, gifts. you have to put this into context too that like, yeah, I guess it's fine for you to talk about your sex life with your wife like in a normal situation. The context of this is that these recordings are all being made after your wife has died. Yeah. And it wasn't just your wife who died that night. Right. And you're being scrutinized heavily for that. And what you want to talk about on these recordings with someone is your sex life? I mean, I I wouldn't really like... I'm trying to think if like if I were a wife, like how I would feel about having that kind of part of my relationship exposed. And I really wouldn't mind having heard like, you know, oh, it was very interesting or all it was brand new and exciting and kind of saying like this was new for us and or being like, you know, we had a, you know, bombastic wedding night. That's fine. But it's just a little too detailed for comfort. And if you want those details, you're more than welcome to read the book that we'll be talking about later. Well, but it's also being <laughs> recorded you oh, know, these are tape like, recordings, yeah. Right. Yeah. Being recorded for public consumption. Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't a private conversation that you're having with, like, your best friend, you know, who you might talk about some of that type of stuff with, well, but it would be a private conversation. I think at the time, we'll, we'll get to those. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Moving on. So, Kimberly Catherine McDonald is born on April 18th, 1964. And later that year... Colette, Kimmy, and Jeffrey moved to Chicago because Jeffrey has now been accepted into Northwestern University. So, again, not an Ivy, but still a really, really well-known medical school. Yeah. So this guy is, like, really good. They would welcome their second daughter, Kristen Jean McDonald, into the world on May 8th, 1967. The girls had, like, such short lives, obviously. Yeah. So I'll do my best to describe a little bit about them. I just don't have the background because they were only five and two. But, and this is Jeffrey's description of them. Because, unfortunately, we always have this problem. People don't 
really give enough focus to the victims in these documentaries and things. And I know that there's a lot to cover in the bulk of the crime. But again, unless you're reading a book, you're not going to find out anything about these girls. Right. And with their lifestyle, though, too, and how young the girls were, there really isn't anybody else that can tell you much. Right. I mean, except the grandparents. But even on the family site, I could not find really any detail about them. But anyway, um, Jeffrey describes the eldest daughter, uh, Kimberly, or Kimmy, as she's fondly called, as being very, very bright. Like he had you know, mentioned, like, I knew we had a bright one on our hands. That she was just very intelligent and shy. That at five, she was already reading. And that she was very sweet. When speaking of Kristen, or Christy as she's called, he remarks that she was a bit aggressive and liked to protect her big sister. So like the children that would play, like if anybody went up and like bullied or touched Kimmy, that Christy would run up and slug him. (laughs) (laughs) But he also remarks that although that she was definitely a tomboy and liked to be outdoors and all of that, that she was a very beautiful little, like she looked like a girly girl, but she was not. So after the two girls are born and he's in Northwestern and going through some things, Jeff and Colette start to have some difficulties in their marriage. They had difficulty getting through his last years of medical school and his subsequent internships because he worked really, really long hours. And when he was home, he was sleeping. And I think that's to be expected from um, going through a medical internship, especially because he was going into surgery. Which is incredibly strange. Yeah, but even without a specialization like that. Right, yeah. I mean, what do you expect to happen? I would imagine in their, I would say, early 20s still, early to mid-20s, having two children and a wife and going to medical school, yeah, you're going to have some difficulties. So Yeah, but those are the sacrifices you make. Yeah. For then the, and they the type of lifestyle you'd be able to lead once you're successful. And they did, and they actually started to begin leading that successful lifestyle because he ended up graduating and then things changed because after that Jeff decided to join the United States Army in July of 1969 and after his training and a few assignments the family ended up moving to Fort Bragg North Carolina on October 29th 1969 Um, and they moved into this famous address a home on the base at 544 Castle Drive Uh, The month prior to that, he had been assigned to the Green Berets. And, of course, I'm looking up what what the hell is a Green Beret because they always say that when they talk about him. And I'm like, is this something special? It is a special forces unit Mm -hmm. of the military. I thought it was something that you kind of like had to try out for. But I keep reading that he was assigned to it. Like, what, you thought that they had to, like, audition? Well, not audition, but I would think that if you wanted to go into some sort of special forces, you'd have to pass more tests or things like that. Well, there's more training that you go through. Yeah, I'm not sure that all it entails, but for all intents and purposes, it is a special forces unit of the United States Army. Jeffrey describes their time there as happy, and so does Colette. (laughs) I put here again because every time I'm taking notes from this book, uh, he goes into a lot of detail about his and Colette's lovemaking. (laughs) But... um, I, I hope they can hear how hard I'm rolling my eyes yeah. right now. But from different sources and his own testimony, I found that he slept with at least one other woman during their time there. I believe that he admitted during an interrogation that he had had a one-night stand, I think at the time that they were at Fort Bragg, but there were... It's unclear the number of extramarital encounters he'd had. 
but there were multiple. I believe that there was a stewardess from Texas or a flight attendant, something like that. I think later on he goes to admit that there were other women on the base that had attempted to get into bed with him and whether or not he's telling the truth about whether or not he vetted them, I don't know. (sighs) He's so toxic. Yes, but he'd also gone out on many training sessions and uh, he was the physician for the boxing club and was gone often, so, you know, boys will be boys, right? (laughs) So... Within a matter of, now, I've seen it accounts weeks, but I've also seen other accounts where it says days. Um, Within a matter of days or weeks before her death, Colette called her mother, Mildred, and asked if she and the two little girls could come and stay with her. And Mildred said that it wasn't a good time, so at this time we're in, like, it could be any time between January and February when this call was made. Um, It wasn't a good time and that she should wait until the spring. The reason for the call really is unclear, um, but it's certainly speculated that this is because of the issues in their marriage. But uh, again, that's only speculative. But I mean, I I don't know why she would be asking her mother if only she and her daughters could come and stay, especially if they were so happy at Fort Bragg. But I do want to point out that uh, this was a message that Colette had handwritten into her Christmas cards to her friends the Christmas of 1969, quote, We're having a great all-expense-paid vacation in the Army. It looks as if Jeff will be here in North Carolina for the entire two years, which is an immense load off my mind, at least. Life has never been so normal, nor so happy. Jeff is home every day at five, and most days even comes home for lunch. By the way, we've been having such a good time lately that we are expecting a son in July. End quote. Okay, but... No one puts their dirty laundry in the Christmas card. I was going to say, this is like a Facebook thing where right. you're like, ah, like you could have like a fight in the kitchen as you're literally posting like, mm-hmm. love my hubby. <laughs> <laughs> Couple goals. <laughs> Hashtag bae. I don't think Colette would have been that type of woman, to be fair. She seems way too... Not. Th- I don't think that she would try to be showy, but you're not going to put no. any of the bad out there, especially in a Christmas card. You're going to yeah. highlight the good. You might embellish a little bit. Because that's just what you do. Mm -hmm. Well, in any case, they're pregnant. Now, Jeffrey says later on that he didn't know what they were having. Hmm. But in her Christmas card, it says they're having a boy. So I don't know. And that's the only inconsistency that ever pops up in any of the things he says. Oh, right. Yeah. We probably shouldn't just pay too much attention to that. So fast forward. On the afternoon of February 16th, Jeffrey had taken his little girls to feed a pony that he'd gifted them that Christmas. Um, I, so in case you were wondering what kind of money they had, <laughs> they had pony for Christmas they money. Were doing, <laughs> they were doing well. But I also have, again, this is where the accounts, you'll just have to take it with a grain of salt because most of these accounts are told by Jeffrey. and He seems super reliable. I don't know what the problem well, is. Well, they change even when it doesn't have to do with the crime because he also says that he played basketball with some of his army friends. So was he feeding the pony or playing basketball after work? He says he worked that day and then played basketball with his friends. But in this account, he took the girls to feed the pony. Whatever. We'll go with the pony. Um, He brought the girls home around 5.45 p.m. He and the family had dinner. Colette was there. Colette, who at this time had gotten back into her studies to become an English major, then left to attend a psychology class with a friend. 
Uh, Jeff watched television with his girls before putting Kristen, the little one, to bed. Um, he then watched Kimberly's favorite show. I think it was called Laugh In or something. You I don't know what Laugh In is? No. It's Rowan and Martin. It was kind of like a variety sketch show. No, never heard of it, actually. Oh, boy. But that was uh, Kimmy's favorite show, and he always watched it with her on the nights that Colette went to school. That's going to be one of those things that my dad talks to you about. Yeah. Where he's like, you know, when you're doing these things, if you need somebody who actually <laughs> understands that time frame. When he, FYI, <laughs> both Michael and Marie have told me their opinions on cases that they disagree with me on. <laughs> and I'm like, well, of course you're going to side with your son. <laughs> So, yeah, because yes. they always side with me. That's My <laughs> family's known for being very agreeable and mellow. In the Shanda Sherrod case, I definitely got the talk from your mother that was like, well, listen, I'm a mother. <laughs> yeah, well, and you got the same thing from my father. Like, listen, I'm a father. And he did that. You and I were trying to have a conversation, and he took the phone yes. out of my hand. Yeah, so, right, back to uh, Castle Drive here. So after they watch Laugh In, the show I've never heard of before, uh, he puts his oldest daughter to bed. And Colette arrives back at the residence at approximately 9.40 p.m. She and Jeff uh, watch television and in some accounts that they had a drink or two. Side note, I meant to look this up, but was it not common knowledge that liquor is bad for a fetus? We're still, we're in 1970? Yeah. I don't think at that point... Okay. That was a widely known thing because um, if you remember, they do a lot of jokes at the expense of the 1960s and hairspray. And one of them is that in the 60s, pregnant women, you know, pregnant women were still freely out at bars, smoking Smoking, cigarettes, drinking martinis. So So, I don't think in 1970 they knew that that was a big old no-no. I'll let it slide, especially considering what's about to happen to her. I'll let it slide. All right. So, she and Jeff shared a drink, watched a television show. They were watching The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. I have heard of that one. Yeah. I hope so. And It's still running, just with a different host. Yeah. So <laughs> It's Saturday night. There is that Saturday night That's live. Saturday night live. Whatever. Anyway. Oh, my lord. Oh my okay. Anyway, Colette doesn't finish the show. She retires to the bedroom about halfway through, changes into her PJs, passes out. So then, he continues to... Like, watch TV. In some accounts, he reads a book. And he says at approximately 2 a.m., he gets up and washes the dishes. Like, every good husband does. And then he heads to bed himself. But when he goes to bed, and again, this is just the account I'm going to give, uh, Kristen had crawled into bed with Colette and had wet his side of the bed. So rather than wake up his four- to five-month pregnant wife to change the sheets he just kind of was like meh i'll just leave her here to sleep in the pee and i'm gonna go sleep (laughs) on the couch that's what i kept thinking i was like you know maybe his intentions were good like i you know i better not wake her but i'm thinking dude she's gonna roll all over in that yeah whatever and and not the smell oh and it's gonna soak through the well maybe they had a mattress protector they had two small girls that probably climbed into bed with them frequently i guess i was just upset about it anyway he puts kristen back to bed and he leaves Colette in there with the pee, and then he goes and <laughs> goes to sleep on the couch, leaving the mess for the morning. So then, at 3.42 a.m., and now we're on February 17th, 1970, 
Jeffrey McDonald calls the Fort Bragg Emergency Services. And so it's not 911 because they're on the base. So he actually just dials zero for an operator. Right. And that's who he speaks to. And he faintly speaks into the receiver. Like he's intentionally trying to be quiet. And says, help, 544 Castle Drive, stabbing. 544 Castle Drive, stabbing. Hurry. Mm Mm-hmm. Followed by the sound of the receiver uh, hitting the floor or smacking into the wall. Like, basically, he just drops the receiver at that point. Right. And at that point, they would have been corded, so I don't know, you know, whatever. But there's this thud, essentially. Within 10 minutes, uh, the military police arrive, and they believe they're showing up for a domestic dispute. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they arrive, they get, like, right away, you said, right? Yeah, Not within like, 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, the front door is closed, and it's locked. The whole house is dark inside. Uh, They get no answer at the front door, so they go around the back. They find that the rear screen door is closed, but it's unlocked, and the back door is open. So a sergeant enters through that back door. He uh, heads toward the master bedroom. He quickly runs to the front of the house, and he is shouting at the top of his lungs, tell them to get Womack ASAP. Uh, And Womack is a a medical center. yeah. Yeah, nearby. Colette was found on the floor of the master bedroom on her back with one eye open and one breast exposed. She had been bludgeoned and stabbed. Uh, She had been partially covered by a torn and blood-soaked pajama top and a paring knife was found next to her body. On the headboard, PIG was written in eight-inch, all-capital letters in blood. Jeffrey was lying on his stomach next to her, wounded but alive. He had his head on Colette's chest and his arm around her neck. When first responders attempted to help him, he told them, again, in this, like, low whisper, Check my kids. I heard my kids crying. Mm-hmm. When they entered the girls' rooms, they found five-year-old Kimberly lying on her left side in her own bed, also bludgeoned and stabbed. Across the hall, two-year-old Kristen was found lying on her left side as well in her own bed with a baby bottle close to her mouth. Kristen had also been stabbed multiple times. After being resuscitated, McDonald sat straight up and yelled, Jesus Christ, look at my wife. I'm going to kill those, expletive, acid heads. He continued to shout, let me see my kids, as he was taken out of the house to be brought to Womack Army Medical Center. Once there, medical staff noted that McDonald had fewer and far less severe wounds than his wife or his daughter's. They actually made specific note that he didn't have a single life-threatening wound on his body. Just minor cuts, bruises, scratches. And he wound up being released from the hospital nine days later. Right. After being in the ICU. I couldn't... Did he actually have a surgery? I couldn't, like, verify whether or not I don't think that it wound up requiring a surgery. Because I went through all of the testimony by the physicians, and I didn't see it. And I was going through it for, like, hours reading this testimony. No, because I remember um, someone having said that he didn't even require stitches. Like, that's how minor everything was. So I don't think so. So then they, obviously, they question McDonald. Oh, right, yeah. And so he gives this version of events when he's originally questioned, questioned by the CID, which is the Criminal Investigation Division. He says, at about 2 a.m. on February 17th, he did the dishes and then decided to go to bed, as you mentioned. When he went to go to bed, he found Kristen in the bed. She had wet the bed. He moved her to her room, 
didn't mm-hmm. want to wake Colette, goes to sleep on the couch. Okay, so then he says he woke a little bit later uh, to the sounds of his wife and daughter screaming for help. And that when he attempted to get up from the couch to help them, he was attacked by three men. And he notes that there were two white men and one black man. And says that the shorter of the white men was wearing lightweight gloves, possibly surgical gloves. He then describes a white woman who was with the men. She had blonde hair. He specifically mentions he thought it may have been a wig. Mm-hmm. He uh, says it was stringy. Right. Says she was wearing high-heeled, knee-high boots mm-hmm. and a floppy hat that covered her face. And says that she was holding a candle or a torch, so something aflame. And she is chanting, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. Right. He then goes on to say that the three men hit him with a club and attacked him with an ice pick. And that the woman stayed nearby shouting, hit him again, over and over. Uh, During the attack, his pajama top was pulled over his head and wrapped around his wrists. He says he used that top to protect himself Mm -hmm. from being stabbed by this ice pick. But he was eventually knocked unconscious in the hallway and didn't come to until after these intruders until after these intruders had left. And at this point, he goes into each bedroom, tries to uh, resuscitate his daughters, then finds Colette. He says a paring knife was still in her chest. Mm-hmm. And so he removes it, throws it to the ground. He couldn't find a pulse. So he says he covered her with his pajama shirt mm-hmm. and then made that call to the operator. Ugh. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> That seems um, a little familiar. Hmm. I mean, just a little, a little bit. What What in particular sounds <laughs> familiar to you? So I guess let's go through some of the things that you mentioned. Sure. Clearly, because we have three bodies, there are three autopsies. I guess we'll go with Colette first. So right. as you mentioned, she was stabbed and bludgeoned and she was struck at least six times. Uh, she had lacerations to both temples, forehead, and the top of her head. She had a fracture in the middle of her skull. Um, her arms were either broken or fractured and obviously had defensive wounds. So yeah, she so was what I had hit, seen was yeah. that it was both of her forearms were yeah. broken. And her wrist was uh, broken as well. One of her wrists. Um, she had bruising all over her arms, fingers, wrists. Her face was completely black and blue. She suffered 16 deep stab wounds, nine to her neck and seven to her chest. In addition, there were 21 puncture wounds. That's a lot. Right. So now we're already looking at a knife and an ice pick. And... And something that was used to bludgeon. Yeah. I mean, she was beaten to a bloody pulp, really, is is what she was. And let's not forget that there was another victim... With Colette, which is their unborn son, um, which doesn't get really mentioned a whole lot, actually. But she was uh, nearly five months pregnant. Yeah. Now, I mean, I already had some familiarity with the case, so I knew that. But when I was going through and doing the research and taking my notes, Mm. I was almost done with the notes before I found anything that mentioned that she had been pregnant at the time of the murder. That is absolutely insane to me. Yeah. They don't really talk about it. It's really weird. Uh, So moving on, the eldest daughter, Kimberly, she was struck three times in the head with a blunt object, at least. 
Um, the right side of her head had extensive black and blue bruising. Her right eye was recessed. She had multiple fractures to her skull that went all the way through her skull, and it was dislocated. Um, she suffered between 8 and 10 stab wounds to the right side of her neck, and the damage to the right side of her face was so bad that there was bone protruding through her cheeks. So she was hit about the face so bad that her eye was recessed, her bones were sticking through. It's all black and blue. Her, I mean, ugh, it's horrific. And so all of these fractures, they're, they're on the right side of her skull. Mm-hmm. And they were actually, it was so severe, the beating to her head, that it the bruising on the brain actually put her into a coma mm. before she passed away before she died she actually was slipped into a coma because it was such a severe beating i wouldn't think it would take too much either i mean she's such a little thing she's only five right Kristen, who was only two at the time suffered 12 knife wounds to the back two of which punctured her heart which had caused a massive amount of internal bleeding she also suffered four stab wounds to her chest and one to her neck She also had 15 puncture wounds. She had defensive wounds on her hands, and the lacerations were so deep that bone was protruding through her finger. Just be warned, again, there is quite an extensive amount of information on this case online, including all of the images from the crime scene and autopsies. Beware. It is incredibly graphic, obviously. And it's not just like your average dead body, which is horrific, Anyway, a murder victim always is, but you're talking about a two-year-old, a five-year-old, and a pregnant woman. Yeah, I caught a glimpse of one photo of Colette, and then I can't even explain to you how insane I must have looked anytime I was looking at this stuff. It's really Like, I was covering the top part of my computer screen so I wouldn't see, like, the suggested images when you do a Google search. Like, wouldn't look at my phone until I had started to scroll because Mm -hmm. I I couldn't. I couldn't do it. Most of the websites that are really well put together have the warning that there are graphic images, but some of them don't. So just beware, especially if you're doing like a Google image search, you'll pull it up right away. Well, that's the thing. You don't even have to be doing yeah. a Google image search because they do those suggested oh, images yeah. right with now things search, too, yeah. and it comes right up at the top. Yeah. So be warned. Um, this is a particularly gruesome crime scene. You can find crime scene photos of the bedrooms and things without the bodies if you are looking carefully to try to skip over that. And you can still, even without the bodies there, it's horrific. The the blood is insane. So now let's go on to the person who suffered the worst injuries, obviously, which is Dr. Jeffrey McDonald. So he was bludgeoned 20 times. I'm just kidding. He wasn't bludgeoned. Mm. He was hit, what, one one time? (laughs) He sustained bruising he over says. his left eye beneath the hairline. I mean, you would think that he's probably suffered 50 stab wounds looking at his family, right? Wrong. He had a superficial stab wound on the upper left arm and a superficial stab wound on the left bicep. He also received a superficial laceration of the left index finger and a superficial stab wound to his left abdomen. Okay, so just to directly juxtapose that, okay? Colette had 21 stab wounds that were like the puncture wounds right 16 stab wounds from a knife to her neck and her chest those were so severe that it actually severed her trachea Mm -hmm. in two places okay then you have their five-year-old daughter had eight to ten stab wounds just to her neck Mm -hmm. 
and their two-year-old daughter had 33 stab wounds between her chest, neck, hands, and back. And those are including and the puncture wounds. 15 additional oh. puncture wounds. And then we have his little uh, yeah. scrapes. So he did actually suffer one um, quite serious injury, actually. So he had one deep stab wound. And that was located between the ribs on the right side. And that actually resulted in a collapsed lung or a, a portion of it, really. Yeah, it was um, a partial collapse. It's kind of, I think it's called the pneumothorax. I don't know. They <laughs> they go into quite a bit of detail when the, um, the when the physicians are testifying in the hearings and subsequent trials and things like that. But I, I would imagine if not treated, it could be very serious. And I would imagine that it was pretty painful as well. But it didn't stop him from breathing. They did have to uh, insert a chest tube. But it wasn't life-threatening. So, yes, a serious injury, but not, not life-threatening. Right, and, I mean, you know, you said it's, it's a little bit deeper, but this, even this wound was only five-eighths of an inch. Right. Yeah, so those were his wounds. So, in comparison, it was not, not that bad. And as I gave the rundown of Jeffrey's wounds, I do want to go ahead. We don't typically, but I actually read verbatim the first portion of that. So I want to go ahead and credit my source. That is the McDonald'sCaseFacts.com. Just because I I read the rundown of his wounds verbatim, I just want to be sure it's credited. So again, that website is McDonald'sCaseFacts.com. And just because (laughs) I think it may be important later... That wound that causes the partial collapse of the lung is described as clean, small, and sharp. Yes. We'll touch on it later. (laughs) In the words of my dear friend, Mike, save it. (laughs) Hold it. (laughs) So uh, moving on, why don't you go ahead and set up this crime scene for us? Okay, so really, we've already kind of explained, you know, where they find Colette, where they find the girls just kind of those those things that they see immediately as they're mm-hmm. tending to these bodies. So just, you know, as usual, just kind of a bulleted quick list as far as the physical evidence and mm-hmm. some more of the observations. So the they find a, three weapons outside the back door. And these are in addition to the paring knife that's found near Colette's body. That he claims to have taken out of her chest. Right. Right. So... They find these three other weapons outside the back door. They find what they describe as a club. It was mm-hmm. basically just a heavy wood object. Right. Uh, there are references to it could have been from like a bed frame. It might have been a you know a bed post. Things like that. Uh, they find a Geneva Forge knife, which is a large kitchen knife, and this knife is incredibly dull, and the blade is bent. And they also find an ice pick. And all three of these weapons are right outside the back door. Uh, The paring knife that they find in the master bedroom next to Colette's body, they find no prints Mm -hmm. on that knife. There are, there's no visible blood. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure you'll touch on it during the investigation. They do find some trace amounts later. The positioning of those trace amounts is a little odd, but there's no visible blood when they're looking at this weapon. They find a bloody footprint... In the doorway of the master bedroom, they find a brown, a brown hair in Colette's hand. A limb hair, right? Uh, yes. Is, yeah. A bloody palm print on the footboard 
of the bed in the master bedroom. Mm. There's pig, like I already mentioned, written in blood on the mm-hmm. headboard of that bed in the master bedroom. Right. Now, that, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe in his original account, Jeffrey didn't even know that that had been written on his headboard. Yeah, I don't remember specifically if he was asked about it. I didn't see any, I didn't see anything that had yeah, him I, mentioning it. Yeah, I believe he said that he had no knowledge of that being written there. And when you look at the photos, it uh, the headboard's brown. Yeah. And it wasn't written on the wall. It's written on the headboard, and it's not written horizontally. It's written vertically going down. Yeah, like you'd have to turn your head to the side. Kind of weird, especially be because the it. headboard's not like at eye level. It's below you. Right. So it's and really awkward. It's actually Exhibit A. If you want yes, to go look is. at our Instagram yep. uh, right now, you can see what we're talking about. But yeah, it's faint. It is kind of hard to see Yeah. at first. Underneath the headboard. And it's on Colette's side of the bed. Yes. Um, underneath the headboard, they find the tips of surgical gloves. Mm-hmm. Then they have Jeffrey's pajama top, and it has 48 cylindrical holes. Right. These clean, sharp, circular holes. They notice that the living room is pretty much undisturbed. Mm-hmm. You know, he says that there was this struggle with these intruders. Mm-hmm. When he got Save up it. off the couch in there. Save it. But it was largely <laughs> undisturbed. They do note that the coffee table was flipped over. Right. And there was a potted plant that was knocked over. Mm-hmm. Lamps on the end tables, all these other things. Just the way that they would have normally been in someone's living room. And then they find some fibers under Colette's body. They also find fibers in the girls' bedrooms. And they find fibers under... Kristen's fingernails and that's the two-year-old right and that's basically a quick recap of the physical evidence and those observations you know in comparison to the sequence of events that they've been given right okay so I guess I'm gonna go ahead and get back to those when talking about the investigation I want to touch on the intruder theory there's not a theory that's what he said (laughs) happened that must be what happened their prime suspect other than Jeffrey McDonald, which is obviously what we all know is going to happen. There was a delivery Wait man. a minute. We're going to talk about Jeffrey McDonald? <laughs> Let me... So... Yeah. <laughs> Do you need a minute? I'm going to... Yeah, I'm going to need, need several minutes now. I didn't take any notes on Jeffrey McDonald at all. So I kind of want to get her out of the way, mainly because... I don't like her. (laughs) I am not talking about her culpability, anything like that. I am talking about I do not like her. So I just want to get her, get her right up on out of here. A delivery man uh, by the name of William Posey. He's 22 years old. He approaches, I believe it's, is it Seagal? Seagal? I don't know. I heard it pronounced both ways when listening to things. I believe that he's the defense attorney. But me and my horrible note-taking, I always tend to leave names out of it when it comes to the investigators. And I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't leave out attorney names and investigator names because they do a lot of hard work. Well, I'm sure the LAPD is very happy (laughs) at this point that we don't write down names of investigators. Uh, But Seagal, he is on the defense. So this William Posey approaches him and he advises him that a woman, his neighbor, Helena Stokely, may be involved in the McDonald murders. What catches his attention is that he describes her as wearing a floppy hat, a blonde wig, and from the time of the murders, she has since stopped wearing those things. Hmm. 
at the time, and now I hear this in all the documentaries that she's 18, she's not. She's 17. So she's a teenager, like a teen teenager, not even like a legal one. Um, she's 17 years old at the time, and she was a police informant, a teenage police informant. Criminal informant. Right. A narcotics informant. Well, not necessarily narcotics, just every drug under the sun kind of thing. <laughs> so she is, I hate to use the term druggy, but that's... She was really, 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 really heavy into the drugs. Everything under the sun, um, specifically LSD, I guess, well, was their drug of choice. Acid is groovy. Yeah. So there are a lot of things that kind of make this sort of surprise story plausible. One of them is that one of the MPs on their way to the crime scene on the morning of February 17th had recalled seeing a woman with blonde hair and a floppy hat and boots walking on a sidewalk in the vicinity at around 4 a.m. when people were arriving. Um, and he later testifies to this in court. Jeffrey even says this in one of his accounts, and so does this person, that Jeffrey states that at first he, he couldn't be exactly sure that it was in fact a female, but by the way that the person was dressed with the high boots and everything, he assumed, but he did mention it could have been a long-haired male, but by the build and everything like that. Well, and he also mentions yeah. that, he, that it looked like it could have been a wig. Right. So that opens yeah. that possibility and, and as well. And this MP kind of like when asked about whether or not it was a female, he kind of recalls that she had nice legs, so he thinks it was. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other thing. Well, I was checking out her gams, so <laughs> I hope. The, the other thing is that Helena Stokely confesses. So, case closed, obviously. Yep, there we go. Right. Well, Why she, have we been talking so badly <laughs> no. about Jeffrey McDonald this whole time? She makes several confessions to this crime, but her version changes every time. Every time she tells it, the story changes. She explains that she and her boyfriend, Army veteran Greg Mitchell, were members of a cult. And she claimed that the cult decided to kill McDonald's family as... There are, again, several accounts for this, um, as retaliation for either his continued behavior toward the drug addicts in the community, because uh, Dr. McDonald treated many of the people like in and around Fort Bragg um, that dealt with addiction issues, and uh, he wasn't well-liked. So, Yeah, he, one of their biggest gripes was that he would not give them methadone. Right. Which at that point, you know, methadone clinics were a big thing. Yeah. So he didn't treat these people kindly. Now, I also heard that it was because of how he treated them and, like, he wouldn't give them the methadone or that he refused to treat them, period. Like, he just wasn't, he didn't like the drug scene and the druggies, for lack of a better term. He didn't like them. Um, well, they didn't fit in with the Ivy League crowd. Yeah. Oh, obviously. Maybe they wouldn't go to bed with him. Who knows? So it's also been alleged that they retaliated because, like you said, he wouldn't give them prescription drugs, uh, namely methadone. So... Helena Stokely is an unreliable witness. I don't think that that's up for debate. She was obviously impaired by heavy drug use. And not only that, but a lot of people describe her as being unreliable. She was someone who liked to tell stories and liked the attention. Also, keep in mind, at this time, she's 17. Mm. So... You know, and not only that, but a lot of people had recounted that William Posey, the person who brought this to the defense attorney's attention, he also was someone who liked to make up stories and things like that. And he was also into drugs and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah. So 
We're going to box up Helena Stokely for now. She will... Oh, she's popping back up. She will, unfortunately, make a comeback. (laughs) So let's get her out of the way and move on to the prime suspect, which is Jeffrey McDonald. So let's go into maybe like his, his personal stuff first, and then we'll touch back on the evidence. So Jeffrey was interrogated officially on April 6th, which honestly seems like a long time. For me, he he gave a statement. He did. He he gave a statement, and he was interrogated. Well, questioned when he was in ICU, right. but he had an an official interrogation on April sixth. Uh, his story also began to change, um, and at this time, the investigators already had doubt in his story, and they were eyeing him as the prime suspect. The pieces of his story changed. His poor attitude and lack of emotion certainly didn't help him, and um, all of the evidence collected was believed to have been. From the, from the McDonald home or couldn't be ruled out as belonging to the McDonald's. So, right, so we're looking at all of this physical evidence and they couldn't yes. rule anything out. Like, oh no, somebody had to have brought this yeah. in. Yeah, so I guess let's go back to the weapons and I'll try to run through this as quickly as possible because we still have so much to cover on this case. So the wooden club, like you'd mentioned, it was 31 inches in length. They did actually kind of prove that this did come from the McDonald home. Uh, the paint on it matched the sidewalk at, at the residence and it was sawed from a piece of wood used to make their bed so that was confirmed it was also confirmed to have been the weapon used on kimberly and colette so that was confirmed as a murder weapon uh there was the hickory knife which i believe was confirmed as a that one was actually confirmed to have belonged to the mcdonald's that's the geneva forge i believe it was like the same brand as all of the knives well, they had in the kitchen the geneva paring knife one of the, I want to say nannies, that's alleged. I don't know if that one was actually Well, proven. I think they're both that brand. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying. 100%. Like they were... The paring knife was unique because it was bent. And a nanny had recounted that they ha- it, was bent. it wasn't bent in the process of the crime. It was bent prior to it. And someone who knew the McDonald's and had been in their home testified to this. And then there was the ice pick, which cannot be proven to have belonged to the McDonald's, but there are a few people that testify to having either seen this ice pick or McDonald having made mention of owning one. So, but... And to be fair, though, you know, because you mentioned the nanny, mm. her account of things also changes a couple of times, and she's someone that they use to tie some of the evidence... A lot of people's accounts change. ...to the house. Yeah. But they, you know, so in particular with regard to the knives and the ice pick... Mm. At some points, she says, never saw that. Other times, she says, oh, yeah, well, I had to use that to scrape ice off of popsicles for the girls when I watched them. You know, so, I mean, just complete opposites in stories. So there's just a lot of question marks. And like you said, everybody's stories in this case. Just, yeah. Completely inconsistent. Yeah. So also the ice pick and knives were wiped clean. Um, The ice pick was confirmed to have been the weapon that caused the puncture wounds. So let's go to the blood evidence. This was something unique. Uh, Now, obviously, we're in the year 1970. We do not have DNA testing at this time. However, they do have blood typing. The investigators really, really lucked out with this. They basically could map out the entire crime scene because all four members of the McDonald family had a different blood type, which is crazy yeah it's a statistical anomaly yeah so jeffrey mcdonald who had uh blood type b his blood was found 
Uh, in a lot of places. Uh, mainly, Everywhere. Mainly by the sinks, the kitchen sink, the bathroom sink, and various doors and doorways. Colette had type A blood, and her blood was obviously all over the master bedroom. And if you see the crime scene photos, it is all over the master bedroom. Right, and they yeah. are able to confirm that pig, yes. when it's written on the headboard, is Colette's is blood. Is Colette's blood, right. And interestingly... Her blood is also found inside of the master bedroom closet. Even more interestingly, they found direct blood droplets of Colette's blood on Kristen's bed. That would mean like she'd have to have been like bending over it. Right. Like blood is dripping directly from her. And splatter, Colette's blood splattered on Kristen's room, like on the wall. Mm -hmm. Which would obviously mean that at some point... She was bleeding, but still alive in one of the girls' bedrooms. Right. Now, the footprint that you described, that blood is Colette's. The footprint is Jeffrey's. Well, there's some debate there. Because what they're able to say is that it is, as far as the size and things, it's consistent. But they can't concretely say that it belonged to Jeffrey McDonald for sure and couldn't have been someone else with a similarly sized shoe. I'm going to go with my sources and say that it was Jeffrey's. Well, you can say that. That doesn't necessarily prove anything. I'm just saying. So moving on. The eldest daughter, Kimmy, she had blood type AB and her blood was found obviously in her bedroom. It was found on a bath mat in the bathroom on a smudge on the kitchen floor. And then most interestingly, it was found in a circle, like like it was dripping outside of the master bedroom and a trail of her blood leading from the master bedroom to her bedroom. So obviously she was alive, but bleeding at some point going from the McDonald's bedroom to her bedroom. Or... Or the other way around, I guess. I don't know. Well, or she ended that her up in body her was moved well, while still bleeding. Her blood is also found, or I guess like brain matter or blood spatter is found on the doorway to the McDonald bedroom. Yeah, it's her brain serum, I think, is yeah. what I read. So that would obviously mean that she had been bludgeoned in that doorway. Yeah, she'd have been struck at least once. At least once in that doorway. Yeah. Moving on to Kristen, her blood didn't leave her bedroom. Hers was directly on the bed. She had a pool of blood on the floor next to her bed. And interestingly, there was her blood on the rim of Jeffrey's glasses. Now, Colette and Kimberly's blood was also found on towels in the bathroom, but not from them bleeding on the towel. It's their blood in wipe marks as if a wep, like the weapon, like the weapons were wiped clean. So it's their blood being wiped off of weapons. It's like blood swipes and it's Kimberly and Colette's blood. So let that be that. So that's the blood evidence. Um, Obviously, there are a ton of fingerprints. I mean, I would imagine there have to be hundreds of fingerprints in my own home. So, you know, a family of four, I would imagine there's a lot. Some were destroyed after collection or while being photographed. Many of the fingerprints were unidentified, partial, or just in poor quality. Three bare blood footprints were there exiting Kristen's room. Yeah, they were in Kim and Colette's blood. And again, the footprints are assumed to have been Jeffrey's. And the footprint, I get, I don't know how they figure this stuff out. It's insane to me. But the footprint suggested that whoever made them, and they're assuming it was Jeffrey, was carrying something heavy. I guess by the weight that's pushed into the, the carpet, because it's carpeted, 
But yeah, that that's just an interesting... I have some counterpoints. I'll hold them. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> the almost last tidbit that I want to talk about here is the pajama top, which is actually a huge piece of evidence. So the color of the pajama top is blue, but looking closely, it could be like blue or like purpley kind of mm-hmm. threads. Also, the pajama top doesn't have like buttons or anything like that. Like the sleeves are open. So that coupled with the fact that the tears in the pajama top, um, and those were studied in 1971, so prior to the first kind of thing here, the pajama top was ripped down the front and on the sleeve. And during the investigation, they kind of reached the conclusion that this pajama top could not have been pulled over his head as he claimed. It wasn't the conclusion that he hadn't been wearing it or anything like that, just that that was an inconsistency that was discovered, was that it could not have been pulled up over his head the way that he had claimed and held around his wrists. Um, because the wrists weren't buttoned, it would have come off. Well, and the way that it had torn. Counterpoint: He didn't necessarily say that it was that it was intentionally put around his wrists or like held around his wrists. He, I think, the way he described was that it became tangled. Right. Like in the scuffle when it was pulled off, it got tangled, and well, that's how it stayed way, there. The tears, though, well, suggest that it yeah. was torn off of him and not. I, I'm just saying what they found in the investigation, and, and that's the conclusion that they reached. Now, the threads. Most of the threads were found in the master bedroom, and the evidence here is the lack of threads, really in the living room where Dr. McDonald says that the main struggle took place with him, at least he's having this struggle with three grown men and his pajama top is torn, removed in some sort of fashion. And obviously when you first rip something is when the majority of the threads or fibers or things like that are going to drop. And the bulk of the fibers were dropped in the master bedroom, which would suggest another inconsistency that the struggle had not taken place in the living room and had in fact taken place in the bedroom. He says that he wasn't wearing the pajama top when he discovered the bodies. And again, like I mentioned, he said that he didn't approach the headboard where a pig was written. And pajama fibers were collected from the bodies and directly below where pig was. Well, point of clarification, fibers were found. Well, because I have some counterpoints. We'll go back on this so because I have some points to time, make about it as well. But this is their conclusion based on their investigation. This is why they reached this you know conclusion. Additionally, many pajama fibers were found underneath Colette. 24 fibers were collected from this area, specifically around Colette, and one from under her head. Uh, there were only two more kind of smaller pieces of evidence, I guess. And this I actually had... I had tried to look through and then I'd heard the majority of this information from a podcast, which I will disclose some here toward the end once I pull up the name because I didn't write it down. It was a bathrobe. It's a white bathrobe and there was blood on the bathrobe, grass blades found at the bottom of the bathrobe and pajama fibers inside it. Basically, the investigators are saying is that he is wearing the pajamas, put on the bathrobe to walk outside. And it was raining that night, and because of where the weapons were placed, which is another interesting fact, the knife and the ice pick are right next to each other underneath a bush. So it's as if he walked out in the bathrobe, knelt, so the bottom of the bathrobe touched the grass, and because it's wet, it clings to it. Um, So they reached that conclusion. And they found an empty suitcase that had been placed on top of the blood in the master bedroom after the crime had been committed, which we can get to later. But that's basically all of the kind of evidence that I have that the investigation was using against him. 
And again, like I mentioned before, and I'll end the evidence portion here, was that Jeffrey McDonald did not really show a whole lot of emotion. His lack of emotion, his attitude towards what happened to his family wasn't great. So, Well, and, you know, we've said this quite a few times, but as far as, you know, trying to judge someone's reaction, and I'm not disagreeing with the presumption, you know, that you should be upset and shaken Mm -hmm. and there should be more of a response. So I'm not saying that instinctually I don't agree with that, but you do have to be careful how much you rely on that. Right. It just made him very uh, suspicious. So, yeah. So, um, as you mentioned, it's April 6th, 1970, that there's a formal interrogation. And then less than a month later, on May 1st, the army formally charges McDonald with the murder of his wife and daughters. And so this leads to an Article 32 hearing. Okay, and I'm not going to pretend that I knew what that was when I sat down to do the research, but essentially it's like a, po- a preliminary hearing mm-hmm. in the normal criminal justice system. So if you're if we look at the normal system, which is what people are a little bit more familiar with, right? you have the grand jury that, that gives the indictment, and that's the formal charges, okay? Here that comes from the military and the investigation. Right. Then after there's the grand jury issuing that indictment, Mm-hmm. You'll have preliminary hearings in a normal trial, okay? So before the trial proper actually starts, you have these preliminary hearings. And at this point, they'll go back and forth about what can and can't be admitted and things like that. But one of the first things that they do is kind of present the general lay of the land mm-hmm. to the judge that's going to preside over this. Right. And they're going to decide if there's even enough there to go to trial. Trials are expensive, They cost the government, the state, the taxpayers quite a bit of money. Mm -hmm. You're asking people to dedicate a lot of time. And time is pretty precious in our judicial system with all of the things that need to be happening. And you have jurors that then serve here. And they're giving a Mm -hmm. ton of their time to sit for the presentation of evidence if we get to a jury trial. Well, I mean, not to mention the defendant's time, who a lot of them are spending time in jail when this is happening. So So the preliminary hearing... uh, Just to clarify, I'm sorry... I believe this kind of hearing, aren't these, uh, the testimony is closed, isn't it? Because yeah, this is like a not... trial where this testimony is open and in front of the defendant. These people are being questioned privately. Right. This is record. all, yeah, this is all procedural stuff. Right. So this is not for public consumption. Right. Okay. So the Article 32 hearing is like the preliminary hearings. So the, uh, this is being overseen by Colonel Warren Rock. And essentially, during the Article 32 hearing, Colonel Rock is going to decide whether or not there is sufficient evidence to require they actually go through a trial. Mm -hmm. So the Article 32 hearing actually lasts a couple of months, this process, from July of 1970 to September of 1970. So during this Article 32 hearing, the Army prosecutor is arguing that McDonald invented the intruders Mm -hmm. due to a magazine article. Because they find a magazine oh, yeah. in the home. Forgot about this. <laughs> What's in this magazine? So Tell the us. article <laughs> in question is about satanic cults. It was Esquire, I believe, was the magazine. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it's an article about satanic cults. And they are able to kind of establish that McDonald had seen the article because mm-hmm. they have a friend who says that McDonald actually told him about this article in particular. Yeah. And that article... A quote that they pull and they present is, The devil just looks groovier. Acid is incredible. Mm. Sounds kind of familiar. 
A little bit. I thought that this article included the Manson murders that had. So just... it does. It does discuss the Manson murders, which um, I believe had taken place the year prior. Had they not? Nineteen sixty-nine. I think that sounds right. It could be wrong. So in in this one, we've already mentioned uh, the attorney's name Seagal Siegel. Yeah. Uh, it's Bernard Siegel. Oh, he was a defense attorney. I was right. Yes. Yeah. And he's actually a defense attorney from Philadelphia. And that's who McDonald has hired to represent him. All right. He asserts uh, that the CID's complete bungling Mm. of the investigation. They didn't secure the scene. People are coming in and out of this place. And I feel like we talk about this with way too many cases. One of the things that you think is just like step number one. You secure this crime scene. Right. So that you can get what you need mm-hmm. and preserve the evidence. Although some of it... I, okay, sometimes though, I feel like you can't place... you Afterwards, you can place blame on not securing it. But initially, no. You've got all of these MPs running in there to try to save people that could be alive. And right, but you can, they're gonna you can account for certain things like that. Because in yeah. a normal crime scene, you also account for the fact that paramedics are going to be coming in. Things like that. Yeah. But... We're talking about just like there was one account that I read was that some guy showed up inside the house at some point and he kind of wandered around, wound up sitting on the couch in the living room for a little while. Yeah. yeah and then yeah, just yeah. kind of disappeared. Mm-hmm. Nobody had any idea who he was. Yeah, he wasn't and, associated with the investigation. And the flower pot that had been turned over in the living room that you mentioned at one point had been stood back up. Right. And they don't know by who. who. Did it? Yeah. There was no reason for that. So the scene's not secured. They lost evidence mm-hmm. or intentionally threw it out in the case of the pajama pants that McDonald's wearing. They were actually thrown out. I wonder, though, um, it may have been thrown out by the hospital staff, which is I not I guess uncommon. it's possible, but again, you know, you're investigating this. Mm-hmm. That's clearly going to be evidence because it's something someone, even if he's a victim, was wearing when the crime took place. Right. So the police should be securing, you know, those types of things. I would think the hospital staff may not know, but the investigators should have asked. And there were people there with him, you know, like you have people that are assigned to victims or suspects, you know, immediately to kind of watch Mm -hmm. over things. And uh, specifically, as far as like lost evidence, just kind of Mm -hmm. vanished. There was skin that was found under Colette's fingernails. Yep. That just vanished into thin air. Well, her hands weren't bagged either when she was taken for autopsy, when she was right. removed from the crime scene. So, so just um, a, a lot of little tiny things that weren't, weren't done properly. So he talks about the bungling of the investigation. Then he also talks about the other suspects, Stokely in particular. And again, he talks about the fact that she had admitted to being mm-hmm. involved, that she had been seen wearing clothes like what McDonald had described of this woman that was... In his home with these three men. Mm -hmm. At this point, while the Article 32 hearing is playing out, Colette's stepfather is insistent that McDonald is innocent. Mm -hmm. Freddie. Good old Freddie. So Freddie even testifies during this Article 32 hearing, if I ever had another daughter, I'd still want the same son-in-law. Right. And that's a powerful statement from a, a murder victim's you know, family. And her mother, Mildred, felt the same way. Right. They loved Jeffrey and couldn't understand why this was happening to him after all he'd gone through already. So this is what they're arguing back and forth. Um, the Article 32 hearing concludes in September of 1970, but Colonel Rock doesn't make a decision or a recommendation until November. So he's, you know, mulling all of this stuff over. He's really taking everything into consideration. At least that's the appearance. And in November of 1970, he recommends 
that the charges be dropped. Mm-hmm. And he is quoted as saying, all charges should be dismissed because the matters set forth are not true. Mm. Okay. So he is, I mean, he at least appears to be 100% certain that he didn't. Jeffrey McDonald did yet. not do this. Yeah. But let's, all of this let's is, reiterate because this will be for later that the charges were dropped. He wasn't found not guilty because right. he was not tried. Right. Because this is all preliminary. Dropped. Okay. So um, Colonel Rock also says that law enforcement should investigate Stokely because that would then be a civilian matter, not mm. something that would be before a military right. court. I believe that the FBI had tried to intervene at some point and were turned away because this was done on a military base with a serviceman. Right. So Colonel Rock makes the recommendation that the charges should be dismissed, but he can't actually throw them out. Right. So, but they are dismissed by the commanding officer for insufficient evidence. That's the reason that's cited when they're mm. when they're dropped. After all of this has played out, Jeffrey McDonald is honorably discharged from the military mm-hmm. and kind of slips back into a civilian life. A really fun one. <laughs> so after he is discharged, he relocates first to New York, but uh, leaves quickly back, well, uh, not back to, but he then goes to California. Um, he, Long Beach. Yeah. <laughs> he. Uh, That's an early midlife crisis if I've yeah. ever heard one. He eventually goes on to find work at uh, in an emergency room at St. Mary's Medical Center. He takes several interviews. He makes appearances and he basically will talk to anybody that asks him. He is not camera shy or I think he kind of likes the attention. If I don't think anybody would disagree to that. He But I think to be fair, you know, if you're if the limelight's offered yeah. to you on a silver platter, most people will probably take it. So he he gives interviews to various journalists and things like that. Most notably... And talk show hosts. Right. Not just journalists. Yeah. Most notably, he interviews on the Dick Cavett Show. Who um, I'm sure you had never heard of before this. I had heard of him, actually. <laughs> he was thought to have been very inappropriate with his behavior on this show. By most of the people who watched it, obviously the investigators and things like that, because he laughed and joked quite a bit uh, on the episode he showed very little emotion when talking about his family and he actually paid more attention to berating the investigation investigators the mps and you know like various other military figures rather than bringing attention to the actual crime and the loss of his family like i would think the charges have been dropped you know you would want to find out who did this and that's what everyone else was thinking i think everybody would would expect that that you still want to find out i mean it hasn't i mean it hasn't been like a year or maybe it's been a year since your your pregnant wife and two daughters were slaughtered in your home that you'd want to find out who did this and he just showed very little interest in that and well and just to be clear it's not even that he like wasn't talking about it or was kind of standoffish about that topic Mm. he talked freely about that topic Right. His focus just wasn't on trying to yeah. find who had done this. Yeah, which I think a lot of people would agree is odd. Odd. I'll give you odd. Yeah. And he is said to have been very promiscuous, which I'm sure you don't find surprising at this point. Yeah, like this is so, news now? Yeah, he took on many, many lovers. And I had heard in one account as well that he had had a garage sale where he sold his wife and daughter's like property didn't we just talk about a garage sale on the last episode 
I won't comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, along with his promiscuity, he also had an influx of money, obviously. He's a practicing surgeon at an ER in California. So he purchased a, uh, a large condo in Huntington Beach, and he also owned a yacht or some some large boat. So he had women, money, boats, condos, Well, and by that point, he had already worked his way up, too. He wasn't even just a physician yeah. practicing in the ER. He was the director of emergency medicine for St. Yeah. Mary's Medical Center. And, and I am in, like... I, I'm not questioning his ability. Obviously, from the very beginning, he's been very you know, a very astute student. I would imagine that he got to where he was because he did earn it, at least with his career. This lifestyle, and especially, especially his interview on the Dick Cavett show, drew him a lot of negative attention from one person in particular. And who might that be? That is our dear, dear, dear friend, Freddie Kassab. Um, who, again, is the stepfather of Colette, more so an actual father to her. And like I'd said, Freddie and Mildred had both been in Jeffrey's corner from day one. They never doubted him. You said what Freddie testified to, that if he'd had another daughter, he would want the same son-in-law for her. And there are letters that you can read that they wrote to each other. And in all of these letters, Freddie and Mildred are just like, we're so sorry this is happening to you. We love you, Jeffrey, like all of that. But the communication starts to dwindle, and he kind of pushes them out of his life or is more annoyed with them, more so. And of course, Freddie was very pleased with the results of the hearing, and he had continued to ask him or ask Jeffrey for the transcripts of this hearing. Right, because as we mentioned, this isn't for public consumption. This is closed. So Freddie right. was only in the courtroom when Freddie testified. Right. He doesn't know everything else that happened. He doesn't know the other yeah. things that were said. And, and he wants to read them. Yeah, Jeffrey worked his way around it and basically wouldn't give them to him. Not necessarily refused, but kind of found excuses not to give it to him. And it all seemed kind of shady. That coupled with the interview wasn't good. And eventually... Jeffrey got tired of him, you know, continuously hounding him. And he ended up telling him that he and a few of his army mates had found, tortured, and killed one of the alleged intruders. Yeah, so he he tells him that they've actually been traveling the country, mm-hmm. hunting these people. Right. And they finally found one. And the, the wording that he used, because the call was recorded, is that they put one of the intruders six feet under. Right. Um, this is obviously a blatant lie. Right. And when he's confronted with the fact yeah. that this is a lie, that this didn't happen, he says that he was just trying to calm the in-laws down. Mm-hmm. That he was, you know, they had this thirst for revenge and he was trying to give that to them mm-hmm. without anyone doing anything crazy. That's basically how he tries to explain that away when he's confronted with this recorded call. Well, Freddie wasn't too happy about this. And he loved his girl. So he finally got a hold of the Article 32 transcripts and he poured over them. And he pretty much found out that much of what Jeffrey testified to had contradicted in his mind the physical evidence. Well, and just so that no one questions Freddie's dedication, when he finally gets his hand on these transcripts, it's Christmas Eve. And he spends that night and all of Christmas Day... Mm -hmm. Pouring over these And even at this point, Mildred wasn't convinced. Mildred wanted him to drop it. But Freddie was diehard. He was going to find out what happened to his daughter and his granddaughters. So after his mind changes, he writes an 11-page report for appeal. 
And he suggests that the hearing wasn't handled properly. Now, now Jeffrey suggests the same thing, that it was poorly handled. And Freddie thinks that it's been poorly handled. But I think both of them, for different reasons, feel well, that Well, because <laughs> McDonald is saying the investigation right. was flawed. And Freddie is saying this hearing was flawed. Was right. flawed. Um, but anyway, he made 500 copies of this and handed it out to members of Congress. And that is dedication. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because when you, when you first read some of these accounts, they say, you know, that he started pushing for McDonald to be retried, that he started lobbying the mm-hmm. government for them to reopen the case. And then and as you dig a little bit deeper, yeah. he made copies and walked around handing them out to politicians. And you know what? It worked. This got, the, got, got their attention. Yeah. So on June 1st, 1972, uh, the CID submits a 3,000-page report. And they named trying McDonald's. trying to one-up Freddie over here. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, you're 11 pages. <laughs> Hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it names McDonald as the chief suspect Surprise, in their guys. investigation. And so this report is submitted to the Justice Department. Mm-hmm. And the Justice Department, I guess procedurally, is supposed to have 30 days to review the report. And then they're supposed to make a decision. Well, they review the report, but they don't make a decision until July of 1974. So two years after this report is submitted, and they do choose to move forward, and they convene a grand jury in August of 1974. Uh, This grand jury is convened in North Carolina, Mm -hmm. and the grand jury on January 24th, 1975, issues an indictment against Jeffrey McDonald. So he is arrested within an hour. So they were ready. Well, I mean, yeah, it's been four years. So he's picked up right away. Um, a week later, January 31st, 1975, he is released on bail while he awaits trial. It's $100,000. So when we go back into these pre-trial things, you know, because now we're in a civil court. Mm-hmm. So we go into the preliminary hearings and McDonald's attorney tries to argue double jeopardy. So I think okay. we can pause for a second <laughs> and we'll talk about why this isn't. Oh, here it is. This is a good double place. jeopardy. Okay, right. <laughs> right? So double jeopardy so, well, is the concept that you cannot be tried for the same crime you know, twice. Let's, let's be professionals here. Let's go to dictionary.com. <laughs> <clears throat> Hold, please. <clears throat> double jeopardy. The prosecution of a person twice for the same offense. So. That's. <laughs> I definitely expected a longer yeah, definition. You were, yeah. I really hyped that You were that just for trying no to get reason. more airtime there, and dictionary.com did not help uh, you No, it did not deliver. So, so essentially, though, double jeopardy really is only going to apply after you've had a trial mm-hmm. and a jury verdict. Right. Well, right? Or it could be a bench verdict. Well, yeah, but, 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 you a, have been a, but a binding verdict a that stands. A tried and convicted. Right, because we talked about with Cal well, Harris oh, no, 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 on the last on. episode. Hold on, we're saying this wrong. We're saying this wrong. Not convicted. You can be tried again if you've been convicted well, no, of no, a crime. Well, no, no, not if it stands. That's where, I was, that's where I was heading with this, because double jeopardy didn't apply in Cal Harris's case because those convictions were overturned. So you need that mm. action. You need for the, that conviction to be overturned. Once you have an acquittal... You don't get to overturn an acquittal. Right. You did not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this person committed this crime. Mm -hmm. You don't get another bite at the apple. Right. You can have, for whatever reason, like a a hung jury, something that would would either result in like a mistrial uh, or, yeah, an an acquittal 
a mistrial or after an appellate court, like an appeal. You can be tried again. Right. But if you have an acquittal, they can't bring you back. No, never. You know, they were not, not able to prove the their same case. Or similar charges. And so again, though. Yeah, you, you can't be like acquitted of murder one and then be tried for murder two. No, because usually, crime. usually that's a lesser included. So you're mm. usually acquitted of that at right. the same time. Um, but again, that's all if there had been a trial. The Article right. 32 hearing is the only legal process that has played out yeah. before this trial starts. And again, and it that is, is a not hearing, a trial. Just like you said, hearing, right. not that is trial. A, it's the equivalent of a preliminary hearing. So at the same the same stage where they're trying to argue double jeopardy before this trial starts, right. that's what the Article 32 hearing was. Yeah, that it point was not he'd only been charged. The end result of this hearing was that the charges were dropped, right. not that he, you're right. Not So he was not tried, he wasn't acquitted, he, he wasn't, wasn't convicted. Indicted. It was well, he technically was indicted because of the way that the military process is a little different. I guess. Because he had the charges placed. But he wasn't tried. So Plus, double jeopardy doesn't apply here. We'll need to look this up and then maybe comment or have some sort of live like we've been promising. We'll need to look into the legality of being tried in a military court versus like a civilian court. Because I, there are a lot of different rules. I can't think of their names right now, but I know of two cases that you're going to love if that's something that's going to interest oh, you. Oh, I definitely know one of them. And I'm going to thank <laughs> Karen and Georgia over at My Favorite Murder for those because they actually have covered two cases like that where oh, someone we'll went through the legal process with the military, but then because of different jurisdiction, they were able to do something else. Right. And so there's obviously some legal maneuvering that has to happen there. Mm. Um, but they were able to do that. So I will find those names for you. Right. So, so the double jeopardy thing makes no sense. Doesn't apply. Right. Sorry. But they also argue speedy trial. And that mm. is that is a right that we have in the United States. Yeah, that I could get behind. Actually. However, judge, a district judge, Franklin T. Dupree Jr. denies um, the request for this to be thrown out on double jeopardy and speedy trial grounds on July 29th of 1975. So we're six months now into all of this so the trial then is set to begin on august 18th of 1975 so just a couple of weeks after he denies those requests Mm -hmm. however three days before the trial august 15th the fourth circuit court of appeals stays the trial so they say nope trial's not going on yet was there a pandemic or something (laughs) so five months later January 23rd, 1976, the same court dismisses the indictment against Jeffrey McDonald. It is a two-to-one decision, and they dismiss the indictment on grounds of speedy trial violation. Uh, So they're saying, you have the right to, you know, that this trial is supposed to happen, you know, right after this crime is committed so that you can mount a proper defense, all of these types of things. So they, um, they do grant that request and they throw it out. We get two years further on, May 1st, 1978, the U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments over this. We're in the big leagues now. And they reinstate the indictment from uh, due to an appeal by the government, and that is a unanimous decision, 8-0 to zero at the time. On October 22nd, 1978, the Fourth Circuit rejects McDonald's double jeopardy arguments. Double jeopardy arguments. So again... Yeah. <laughs> Double jeopardy doesn't apply here. I don't even understand how any attorney would take whatever. Okay. But so now this is even the same court that agreed with you that they violated your right to a speedy trial is telling you double jeopardy is a no-go. 
Right. On March 19th, 1979. So now we're almost a decade after Mm. these murders. Yeah. The U.S. Supreme Court refuses to review that decision by the Fourth Circuit. So the U.S. Supreme Court had agreed to hear arguments after it was thrown out on speedy trial grounds. But when there's an appeal by the defense at the rejection of the double jeopardy argument, the U.S. Supreme Court says they're not going to hear it. Yeah. So this trial finally gets underway on July 16th, 1979 in Raleigh, North Carolina. So Jeffrey McDonald pleads not guilty. And As you do. jury selection starts. And it takes three days for a jury selection to play out. Mm-hmm. The judge at this time does not allow the admission of a psychiatric evaluation that had been done on Jeffrey McDonald from 1979, which stated that he was highly unlikely to have been able to murder his family. And the judge doesn't allow this in because they have not entered an insanity plea. So he says, we don't need to be looking at this psychiatric evaluation because you're not arguing that he's not guilty by reason of insanity. You pled not guilty. So we're not bringing this evaluation report in. Can we, I know this isn't debating it, but I feel like maybe you and I both agree that that seems like a shoddy reason to not allow a professional's testimony, especially a psychiatrist. He, from what I remember Not everyone pleads insane. First of all, you get psychiatrists that are on the stand constantly. It doesn't have anything to do with insanity. But from what I was reading, essentially the judge felt like the waters were muddied enough already and this had been going on for so long already, mm-hmm. and all of these other maneuvers that had already played out. And he said, I, we're not going to confuse the jury. Yeah. If I your suppose. case isn't that, you know, isn't based on the psychiatric evaluation, then mm-hmm. we're not going to admit the psychiatric evaluation. Yeah, I suppose. Plus, the I don't think we ever laid forth the prosecution's actual case against Jeffrey, like how they believe the crime had been committed and and why. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would imagine that he he wasn't like a serial killer. This kind of thing wasn't in his background or anything like that. He wasn't like a, a, a physical type of man. And I think maybe that could have muddied it from the prosecution's point of view because they were kind of saying this was just like a one time event. He Mm -hmm. was, he was angered. And just because someone hasn't, shown those signs of violence before doesn't mean that he couldn't be tipped over i guess i don't know i don't know maybe i'm talking out of my word that we don't say (laughs) well so basically what the what the report tried to argue Mm -hmm. was that he just he wasn't capable psychologically of murdering his family not that it wasn't based on you know had he ever shown tendencies or anything before just upon evaluation of him as a person. I guess. It just seems so weird. Though. It was odd. But anyway, so it gets thrown out. It can't be presented before the jury. The judge also denies a motion to suppress the pajama top. So the pajama top is allowed into evidence. It is evidence. Okay. This right. is going to aggravate me. <laughs> um, he also allows it the prosecution. It is proce- evidence. I, I know, but motions to suppress are pretty common. Not even in just big cases like this. Even in like small misdemeanor courts and things. Motions to suppress are not unusual mm-hmm. because if the basically what you try to find is anything, anything legally that makes it kind of shoddy mm-hmm. will get it thrown out if it's not favorable to your case. So you're looking for technicalities that can have something removed. I think that anything that has the victim's blood on it from the commission of a crime is submitted as evidence. It doesn't matter who it favors. Well, the pajama like- bottoms got thrown away. Yeah, but the so they weren't going to be presented. I don't know if that's what the basis of the motion to suppress was. 
Um, but anyway, motion to suppress his denied pajama top is allowed to be presented. He also allows the prosecution to present the copy of Esquire that was found in the home. And that was their March 1970 issue for all of you collectors out there. Um, and that was the one that included the article about the Manson family murders, had that quote, mm-hmm. you know, that we cited earlier. But Groovy. he did bar the prosecution from admitting transcripts from the Article 32 hearing. So the same transcripts that Freddie was able to get his hands on that kind of changed his mind about everything, the judge says those aren't going to be admitted. This is a civilian trial. And the documents that they were seeking to admit, these transcripts, would have included uh, information from military investigators' reports. And those are largely based on opinion. It's not handled the same way as as reports that we would do in civilian court. Okay. So those have a lot of opinion in there and speculation guess, and things. But I feel like Jeffrey McDonald's testimony from the 30, Article 32 hearing would be pertinent to Well, this. and I don't know if there was ever an argument made specifically to admit that. Hmm. But he didn't allow the transcripts. And they were trying to, I, I believe, bring in the whole transcript. I guess. That seems dumb. Okay. So during opening statements, the prosecution outlines uh, what their burden of proof is, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. They claimed... That Jeffrey McDonald had acted in malice Mm -hmm. and that there was premeditation. They're going for first degree murders. They're, you know, that's their uh, marquee charge. Right. They ask the jury to, and this is a quote from the prosecution, listen to the evidence that comes from the witness stand. Examine the evidence as it is shown to you and reach your own conclusion. And they finish their opening statements with basically... We believe that the physical evidence points to the fact that, unfortunately, one person, not two, three, four, or more, Mm -hmm. killed Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen. And that person is the defendant. Mm -hmm. So then the defense has their opening statements. They start by referencing the night of the murders. They talk about the Army's investigation. Obviously, you know, we've already talked about several issues And the dismissal of the original charges. Um, McDonald's attorney focused on the time that had elapsed since the murders, because now we're nine years later. And that McDonald had spent that time trying to rebuild his life. So he's trying to humanize his client to the jury. He told the jury that they could lift this weight from his client's shoulders by acquitting him. The prosecution calls Paul Stombaugh to testify on August 7th. Mm-hmm. And so Stombaugh demonstrates that the holes in the pajama top were consistent with it having been placed over Colette's body while she was being stabbed. Yeah, so there's 48 cylindrical those... holes. Yeah. Perfect, and circular. Yeah, there's so no, like, if it were being, or... like, torn though, or, like, pulled from him and he was using it to defend himself while being stabbed, that wouldn't have caused, like, perfect circles right. like that. So, yeah, he says the top would have had to have been stationary for the holes to be smooth like they were. Right. Which contradicted McDonald's account. Right. Um, you know, that it was around his wrist and he was using it in mm-hmm. his own defense. However... Uh, the defense was able to raise some questions about Stombaugh's credentials and the forensic methods that he used to reach that determination. Yeah. Well, because they did say also that there were 48 um, holes in the top, and when folded, it matches up 
perfectly with right. Colette's 21 puncture wounds. So, As if it were placed on top of her while she was being stabbed with the ice pick. Um, the prosecution then plays a tape of an interview with McDonald. And that was the interview we've already mentioned on April 6th of 1970. His official interrogation, yeah. Right. So they play uh, the recording. And they play this to the jurors after they have taken the jurors to visit the crime scene. Mm-hmm. And you see that kind of a lot. In, like, TV shows and movies Mm -hmm. about crimes and trials. But in real life, that doesn't happen often. Happens in the big ones. You're not taking them to the crime scene. They got, like, Um, the OJ jury was taken to his crime scene. Well, and that's why I think it seems like it's fairly common, but it really does not happen Mm -hmm. often. Like, that's not a a normal thing that happens in the course of a trial. Side note, um, there's a, a trial, there was a case where a jury was taken to a cliffside for court for the day because that was the crime scene and they needed to see it for themselves. Just that's interesting. Interesting tidbit, yep. So, so on this tape of the interrogation, McDonald seems indifferent, we've mentioned this uh, a few times, while discussing the murders. Um, he got angry and defensive and emotional when they suggested that he was in fact the killer. He also asked why someone who had, quote, everything going for him would murder his family for no reason. So McDonald asked that of the investigators mm-hmm. when, they're, when they're questioning and pressing him on this. The investigators then tell him that they are aware <laughs> of his adultery. And he responds <laughs> on this tape. With the best line ever. Oh, you guys are more thorough than I thought. <laughs> he says that out loud to the investigators, and they play this for the jury. However, the prosecution really could not present any type of a solid motive. Right. And that's noted a lot, and the defense really seizes on that. Um, they don't have any history of violence or abuse, which you know you had kind of touched on. So... The defense sees these weaknesses in the case, plays on those, also argues that the crime scene was compromised, like we've mentioned a couple of times already, that there was evidence that was destroyed, evidence that was lost, evidence simply not collected in the first place. Right. They call multiple character witnesses. They call a forensic expert who disputes the claim that the pajama top had to have been stationary. This, I thought, was so weird but interesting, the forensic expert that they call to recreate these things wrapped a similar material top around a ham <laughs> and stabbed it with an ice pick. What ham did you slap? And it resulted in perfectly cylindrical holes. Not the ham I just bought. Okay. <laughs> So he wraps this around a ham, stabs it to recreate, and he gets these perfectly cylindrical holes. And that's what he testifies to on the stand. So this, and this was just crazy to me. This prompts the prosecution to reenact the way McDonald says this happens. And this isn't with forensic experts or anything like It is the prosecuting attorneys that reenact his version of... Of the attack in the courtroom. So he wraps a top around his wrists 
and has the other attorney just have at him with an ice pick. You gotta do what you gotta do, man. <laughs> so this resulted in jagged and misshapen holes. He even got um, a wound to his arm. The one who had wrapped it around his wrist actually gets cut. Dedication. <laughs> so he gets cut by the ice pick during the reenactment. Um, so then uh, they point out, you know, that just trying to do this reenactment, he gets wounded. But McDonald didn't, didn't have any wounds to his wrist. There were no right. defensive wounds at all. And there were perfect holes in his shirt. So then they call Heather's favorite character in this oh whole God, saga. I was hoping you were going to forget. We would just skip around <laughs> over her. So Helena Stokely is called to the stand. And she's one of the final witnesses for the defense. She has to be subpoenaed. So she wasn't exactly being super cooperative at this point. The defense attorneys intended to get her to confess while she was on the witness stand. And, <laughs> and his attorney... Oh. Also speaks to Stokely privately for over two hours before she's called to testify, trying to persuade her to confess on the stand and telling her she'll have immunity from the charges because of the statute of limitations. Supposedly during this conversation, she maintains she couldn't help and then says that she had never even seen Jeffrey McDonald before. Mm-hmm. Um, so she gets on the stand, testifies that she was not involved, that she had no knowledge of the crime. She said she couldn't remember where she was on the night of the murders. And then she points to her own drug abuse. Um, not just at that time, but says that that's still ongoing. Mm -hmm. And that it's, you know, because of that, not unusual for her not to know where she's been. Yeah, that and the confessions that she made were... While she was under the influence. Right. And they were all kind of uh, tacit, though, because she mm -hmm. never admitted to being involved. I don't know if you She watched, admitted to being there. And this is why I decided that I just... I I cannot stand her. I, I cannot. <laughs> and it's because she did an interview, and I... It's neither here nor there who it was with, but she did give an interview, and one of these confessions are in this interview, mm -hmm. like a televised one. And she just boils, she just boils my blood, man. Like the way she speaks just aggravates me so badly. I, I can't explain it, but she's so very, just so soft spoken. And while she's talking about murdering this wife and two children, I'm just like, oh my God. And I, I don't know, but she, she just goes back and forth and just, I, I don't know. So before they call her to the stand though, they've built up to it and they've called these other witnesses to testify. Seven of them. That she has confessed to in the mm -hmm. past so yeah seven seven other people that she's confessed to aside from journalists and right so they have so they have all of these people that they've spoken to and they're ready after she's on the stand to present these other witnesses well based on what she actually testifies to um the prosecution argues we don't need to hear from these other witnesses because she's singing a different tune Mm -hmm. She's not saying, you know, they're, they were telling us she was going to come out here and she was going to confess. And then they were going to give these witnesses to back that up, that she has consistently said she had been there. And the judge has to agree with them. Yeah. So well, these, because not because only because she's not or she's recanting, but because 
she well, she couldn't even may really very recant. well have been under the influence of drugs while she was making these confessions to these other people. Right, and she can't even really recant because yeah. she's never given formal testimony right. that she had been there. So the only testimony on record is mm-hmm. that she wasn't. And so the judge has to agree with the prosecution, and he bars these other witnesses from testifying. Right. So the last witness that the defense calls is Jeffrey McDonald. He testifies over two days. Which is also a little unusual because the defendants in murder or uh, homicides typically don't testify for themselves. Yeah, because one of the things that you're that you're told, you know, when you're a defendant is that you do have the right not to testify. Mm -hmm. And that the jury is instructed not to consider that when they deliberate. That they're yeah, they can't say, Well, he didn't testify, so he must have done it. You know, they're told that there are a myriad of reasons why someone may not mm-hmm. testify during a trial like this. Listen, and a lot of the times, you know, at the advice of their attorney, so you can't hold it against them. If the prosecutor of my case was being stabbed in the courtroom to show I was guilty, I wouldn't testify either. Right. I'd be like, no, this guy's crazy. <laughs> I don't want to sit under his cross-examination. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Uh, so he testifies over two days. It's August 23rd and 24th. Uh, his attorneys ask him a lot of questions about his family. Uh, they get him to testify that the family, and this is quoted as well, shared almost everything. We were all friends. Colette and I shared the children growing up. We shared our life experiences. Uh, He says he hadn't remarried because he had thought about Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen every single day. Uh, His attorney then prompted him to detail his childhood, his military career, the family's life at the time in February of 1970. Uh, They presented photos, uh, family mementos, and they allowed McDonald to describe each of these at length. Hmm. So giving a lot of, again, trying to humanize Jeffrey McDonald in the eyes of the jury and paint this picture of the family that obviously would be hard to reconcile with the fact that this could be, you know, a man capable of killing his wife and his two young daughters. Um, Then they presented testimony about his life since the murders. So why had he moved to California? Um, And McDonald said that he did that to distance himself Mm-hmm. And that it made it easier uh, for him to deal with what had happened by working 80 hours a week rather than just sitting around. Well, I won't blame him for that. And I'm... thinking about his family. Right. I wouldn't want to live in the town where my family was butchered either. I mean. So all of day one is the defense. Right. It's their direct, you know, their direct questioning. Day two is when we see the cross-examination by the prosecution. And so at this point, uh, the prosecution is obviously confronting McDonald with the physical evidence, all of the circumstantial evidence that they have. And so, you know, all of these things that are contradicting his version of events. And I I thought this was interesting, too, and I think it could be pretty effective. Um, They begin most of their questions with Dr. McDonald. Should the jury find from the evidence? I thought that was really weird. I read through the transcripts and it was super weird the way they questioned him. It allows them to 
Yeah, because you have to be careful about the way that you phrase questions and things, too, because mm-hmm. things have to follow a certain order when you're yeah, presenting just, things in court. I feel like that shouldn't have been allowed. Honestly, I don't. I think it was really weird. But it allowed them to kind of run through the evidence with him and confront him with everything kind of in rapid secession. So it's a legal maneuver, but it was effective. So they were able to keep asking those questions. Um, McDonald couldn't explain the contradictions. He did, though, uh, argue that the testimony from Army investigators was unreliable because of their conduct and the amount of time that had passed from the murders to even when he was formally questioned for the first time. Um, The prosecution confronts him with the inconsistencies in his accounts, just, you know, as time passes, when he gives these versions of events, Mm -hmm. what about all of these inconsistencies in your own statements? Um, And then, you know, inconsistencies in his injuries, and then specifically... The inconsistencies with statements that had to do with the pajama top because they were relying heavily on right. that as evidence. The defense consistently objected. So they agreed with you. They shouldn't be able to, you know, do the line of questioning this way. Uh, but more often than not, the objections were overruled and it was allowed to continue on. The prosecutors posed questions based on changes to his testimony after physical evidence contradicted his statement so when evidence is presented and then he changes his story so that that fits even just small tweaks Mm -hmm. but now you're changing and adjusting your story and it's morphing as this evidence comes to light uh mcdonald tried to explain that but there's really no great explanation for that so then we get to the closing arguments uh on august 28th 1979 prosecution highlights Uh, The lack of injuries to Jeffrey McDonald. They refute the character witnesses that were presented. Uh, And then the defense focuses on what they called, and this is a quote. I think before we get to the defense, because we haven't mentioned it at all, is the prosecution's theory of events. Sure. So they allege that he and Colette had been arguing in the master bedroom that evening and that Colette had hit him with a hairbrush that they had found on the floor in there. And that's what caused the contusion to his head. Um, they allege or speculate that they had been arguing over some sort of probably extramarital affair that he'd been having, mind you, with the phone call that she'd made to her mother and everything right. like that, or that they were arguing over the bedwetting. So either way, there was an argument in the master bedroom, and he struck Colette. And then, because Kimmy had walked to the door, obviously she'd been alerted through the you know the noise and all of that. Mm-hmm. He then struck Kimmy, which would explain the because she would have witnessed the door, in right? their opinion, right. right? And then you know he continued beating Colette to unconsciousness, moved Kimmy back to her room, and had i guess because of his reading the you know the esquire magazine (laughs) but he had to basically disguise that it was a single person and therefore grabbed other weapons around the house to make it look like there were multiple people Mm -hmm. and noticed that colette was no longer in the master bedroom and that's where her bloodstains are in her daughter's bedroom and that's why the heavy footprints are there and that he had 
knocked her out again, which would explain her blood spatter on the wall of her daughter's room as well, brought her back to the master bedroom where he continued to assault her from there with the various weapons and things like that. Um, he calls, but there's also a lack of evidence on the phones. Mm-hmm. So why, why is there no blood on the phones, things like that? He also describes having washed his hands. So they, you know, they claim that he had wiped the weapons, washed his hands, basically getting rid of evidence, which is why there's no blood on the phones and things like that. And that basically he, he had panicked. He lashed out in anger. He hit her too hard. His daughter witnessed it. He had to take care of it. And then he masked it by staging the crime scene. It was basically their rendition. Or right. You know, their kind of, kind of story. I just figured it's important to throw that in there because... Right, and they and they try to back a lot of that up with the blood typing that they did, mm-hmm. and you know, like you mentioned, the the brain serum that they found blood in other rooms as from where right. bodies were found, things like that. So during the defense's closing arguments, they focus on what they called a campaign of persecution, and they made a lot of the fact that there was still a lack of a motive for him to murder. Mm-hmm. His wife and daughters. So the trial ends on August 29th, 1979. And at that time, McDonald is convicted of first degree murder in Kristen's death and second degree murder in Colette's and Kimberly's deaths. And he is given three consecutive life mm-hmm. sentences. That seems to. Um connect fairly well to the prosecution's theory that he hadn't intended to murder Colette or Kimberly, that it was kind of a... It was a heat of the moment. Right. Right, because that's that what the second degree doesn't have the premeditation. Right. You but know, after it can you, be in that heat of yeah. the moment, that crime of passion is what they're usually referred to. But Kristen being a two-year-old, you're well, not necessarily having those same issues. You're not, you're not having a heated argument. You're not necessarily even worried about it being a witness or a daughter who tried to insert herself. No, that he had to have a thought in his head premeditated. Right. They basically said it was just that he was going to get rid of anybody who could contradict anything he was saying. Yeah. So um, McDonald applies for bail while an appeal is pending because obviously they're going to be filing an appeal. Mm Mm-hmm. That is rejected on September 7th of 1979, so that's within two weeks. They filed for that uh, for that bail motion pretty quickly. And then an appeal of that decision, rejecting the bail, um, is also rejected by the Fourth Circuit on November 20th. So just, you know, two months later. So in 1980, uh, the Fourth Circuit overturns the conviction, and they do that based on violation of McDonald's Sixth Amendment rights, so that's back to uh, speedy trial. He is released on bail. Two years later, the Supreme Court, in a 6-3 to three decision, rules that there were no violations of his rights, so he is rearrested and put back in prison. Uh, there is another appeal filed that's rejected later that year, and then... They try to argue for a new trial, and so there's a lot of accusations back and forth about witness intimidation, that the prosecutor had threatened to prosecute Stokely if she testified for the defense. The prosecution says that Stokely was actually afraid of the defense attorney because of the way that he behaved. None of it really ever goes anywhere. Um, So in the background 
of some of this stuff going on, because this is playing out until the early 2000s, there's DNA advances. Uh, So in 1997, the defense had been allowed to have DNA testing done on some hair evidence. And the results of some of these are released almost 10 years later in March of 2006. The hair evidence does not match Stokely or her boyfriend, Greg Mitchell. The limb hair that was found in Colette's left hand wound up being a match to Jeffrey McDonald. He was also a match for hairs found on the sheets in the master bedroom and on the sheets in Kristen's room. There was a pubic hair that had been found between Colette's legs and a hair found on the sheets in the master bedroom that were not a match to anyone. Um, but there's hasn't really been any movement by any courts based on the DNA evidence and testing that's happened. Uh, so McDonald was originally eligible for parole in 1991, but he didn't apply. And he actually had his first parole hearing on May 10th of 2005. His parole was denied at that point, and the parole board recommends that he needs to serve 15 more years before he's eligible for another hearing. Um, they said maybe if some new circumstances came to light, they would consider something in two years. But this meant that he was eligible to apply for parole in May of 2020, which just came and went, and uh, no word. So we don't know if he's even filed for it. Maybe a hearing's coming, but nothing's happened yet. Probably stopping him because he couldn't do anything in 2020. I'd be right. surprised if they get anything done this year. Yeah. Okay, um, another important piece to this case is the book that I'd referred to earlier. So during his time between the Article 32 hearing and the trial, Jeffrey McDonald had been searching for an author to pen a book for him. And he was hoping that he would find someone that was obviously sympathetic to his situation and someone that would share the proceeds that he received from the book. Um, Super great guy. So he was putting out feelers, and he eventually landed on author landed landed on author uh, Joe McGinnis. He agrees to write this book for him in 1979, and originally, McGinnis believed McDonald's story, and he was permitted special access in court with McDonald's attorneys, and he visited McDonald on a few occasions. Um, while he was in prison, though. He sent, McDonald sent, 31 taped recordings, double-sided cassettes. And how many of the 31 recordings were about his sex life with Colette? A lot. Probably a lot. So he was writing some type of erotic novel. I'm not sure. And and like I said, to be honest, I don't know if in the book that these were things that McGinnis put in there for, you know, entertainment purposes. I mean, he is an author. He is an author in sex sells, so... But yeah, and he introduced his tapes as Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. Oh. Like, it seems kind of like... <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a little weird. So, obviously, McGinnis is given access to all of these things that a lot of people aren't. All of the transcripts he was permitted to do and, and look through all sorts of things. And, and he had a relationship with McDonald that nobody else had. And, you know, obviously had all of these taped sort of things. And... 
all of that together ended up turning McGinnis away from McDonald. And he started writing his book in another direction. And eventually he had finished and the manuscripts were out. And McDonald doesn't find out that McGinnis's book is actually in favor of the prosecution's theory <laughs> until he takes an interview on 60 Minutes and the host hands him a copy of the manuscript and says, don't you know that McGinnis thinks you're guilty? So, yeah. And, and at this point in time, he'd already been found guilty. Mm-hmm. Because later, McDonald turns around and sues McGinnis. And I... As you do. Well, right. I watched an entire interview with McGinnis, and there was an attorney there, and I, I, I don't know who the host was. I, I want to say that it was something overseas, because they were speaking with a British accent, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't have any of those British people here. Yeah, so I don't know what it was, but I watched this whole interview, and they were kind of going through all of the details of this, you know, suit. And basically, McDonald's attorneys... How do I put this? You can't... Authors are protected from certain things, from being sued for certain things because of the nature of their work. Right. And you obviously can't sue someone because of something they said about you. You know what I mean? Like, freedom of speech type of thing. Well... Which covers most things. Right. Basically, McDonald kind of... His attorneys, like, used other phrases. They were basically suing him for these for these things like slander and, and all of this, but using other terms for it, which kind of confused the jury in this trial. And um, one of the jurors, or maybe multiple, had admitted afterward that they thought that because the judge had gone ahead and allowed this trial to occur, that he must have been guilty for mm. something. And that tainted their their verdict in the end because there had been so much hype in all of that interim time right and focus on this case and him and yeah he created such a high profile for himself yeah and what what was strange is that the two of them mcdonald and mcginnis had a signed contract basically saying that mcginnis did not have to write a book that shed positive light on McDonald. That right. was not anywhere in this contract. Basically, the whole reason for this suit was that he was lied to. McDonald felt he was lied to, that he was made to believe that this book was going to be a positive review, and it wasn't. And that that's not what he had signed the contract for. This is complete baloney, honestly. I can't... I cannot believe... Baloney, that, such yeah. strong language. I cannot believe that the judge allowed this, but he did. And that tainted the jurors. And... The jury couldn't decide. It was a hung verdict, but McGinnis's insurance company decided to settle out of court. It was some, like, to the tune of, like, $305,000 or something like that, which, you know, was paid out to McDonald. McDonald was then swiftly sued by the Kassab family, mm. obviously, because they didn't want McDonald to profit off of the murder he committed. Right. You know, and the death of Which their... is illegal. Right. So... They won that suit, and they donated that $305 to the United Way in Colette's name. So, that was nice. But that's good old Freddy for you. <laughs> <laughs> Freddy coming through again. Yeah, well, he's a good dude. He is a good dude. Uh, so, this book 
This book is called Fail Vision. Um, I've read uh, half of it at this point. It is very long. <laughs> it is very long. And I couldn't find it in my local well, library. Well, it's in 31 acts. So. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't find it in my library anywhere. So I finally bit the bullet. The book was only like $9.99. <laughs> and I have, like, I have the Kindle uh, thing and I'm like, oh my god, just buy it. So I didn't buy it in in time to read the whole thing when I finally broke down. But I read like the first half of it, and let me tell you, the way he writes it is incredible because the way that he's done this book is he does it in, in the first half is basically the voice of Jeffrey McDonald juxtaposed with snippets of the crime. So he can be talking about all of the vigorous lovemaking he's doing with mm. Colette, and then McGinnis describes all of the stab wounds that she endured. Right. And it makes it very, like, shocking. He talks it's, about Yeah, how, jarring intentionally. Yeah, and it's, it's really well written. Now, obviously, there were books authored after this that, you know, countered the points that he made and, and came to Jeffrey's defense. But it's a very well-written book. It's obviously heavily influenced by Jeffrey McDonald's tapes, which may or may not be true or accurate, and then obviously Joe McGinnis's opinions and things like that. So again, it it's a book written by a real person that has thoughts, feelings, and opinions that he puts in there. But it's, a, it's well worth a $9.99. I would certainly take a look at it. But this book was published in 1983. And it went on to become a television, I guess you'd call it a miniseries. It's actually like a two-part movie. Total, it's like three and a half or maybe even four hours. And I did watch the movie complete with all of the commercials from 1984. <laughs> and if you don't want to watch the movie, you should at the very least watch the commercials because, oh my God. This is exactly oh what Heather God. said to me on the phone after she watched it. Because. Was, you need to go and watch this and make sure you have the time to watch the commercials because they're gold. Listen, the opinion on females is insane. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's it's pretty funny. But I actually thought that the made-for-TV movie was pretty good, and I thought it stayed true to the book, and I think it's actually a good watch if you'd like to get a good grasp on the case. I don't think that it necessarily tries to make you think that Jeffrey McDonald is guilty, but the one issue that he had with the movie is that it basically does a reenactment of him committing the crime, which puts, you know, once you have that image in your head, right. it's hard to shake, which I understand. But at this point, he's already been convicted of this. Mm -hmm. So he is guilty. Legally, he is right. guilty. So, yeah, just to to throw that in there. But it's a it's a good book. It's it's well worth well worth the read. So but uh, that's where I've gotten all of like the quotes and, and biography, little tidbits and things. But a, it's a hefty read as well. <laughs> yeah. So uh, is that a is that it for us then? Yeah, I think we've uh, we've been a little long winded because there's so much here. Yep. But I think we can get down to it. But I don't know how much we're gonna have to sort through here. I yeah. feel like we're uh, on the same page on this one. Maybe. I don't know. I think we should just go ahead and spit out the verdict. So if we were, you mean our verdict, if we were in the mm -hmm. deliberation room, not what we yes. actually believe. Oh, and just to prepare, I did read like the full seven damn pages <laughs> of the juror instructions in mm. the trial. Yeah. I did not. 
I did. <laughs> <laughs> so this isn't our gut instinct. This is how we would. This is how we would rule. Like how we would vote right. if we were jurors. So how would you rule, Heather? Guilty. I hesitate. And I told you this. I have a couple of things that kind of gnaw at me. So you would say not um, guilty? I'm not saying that just you, yet. Oh, you ha- but you have to. It's the verdict. We are, th- how many times do we have to go through this? <laughs> we are not a hung jury. We don't do this. <laughs> I, um, no, I think, you know, I think there's a reason that the jury deliberated for a while. Because there are some, like, gnawing things. They deliberated for six hours. Or was it six days? I believe it was six days. Are you sure? I think it's six hours. Either way, go ahead. What gnaws at you? Well, no, no. So I do think that I can get to a guilty verdict. Oh. And my gut instinct... Shall I help you? (laughs) Obviously, my gut instinct is that Jeffrey McDonald did this. Right. So let me run down the couple of things that kind of gnaw at me, and I guess that can kind of be the basis for our debate portion this time. How does that sound? Okay. So, obviously, and... Sorry, pause. The jury deliberated for just over six hours. Hmm. That didn't take them long at all. I, I may have needed a little a longer than that. homicide case. Yeah, I may have needed a little longer than that with some of these Not weird details. Okay, sorry. This ahead. is what happens when we take a couple of weeks off and we're researching more than one case at a time. Because I guess <laughs> our case for next week was bleeding into this one as far as the jury deliberation times. So, I know you love her. Ugh. Helena Stokely, it... I understand she is not a reliable witness. I wouldn't just be taking the things that she says at face value. Mm-hmm. The the MP that sees someone fitting her description outside on his way to the house mm-hmm. is is just there in the back of my mind. So every I, time, like, well, explain that if I had considered those details as well, but at the same time. We don't know when this account was given. Was this after he had described someone? Did he hear this? He's still human. I'm not saying that he's lying. Although right. that is a possibility. Yeah. Um, or maybe he saw something on a different night. And another thing that kind of made me feel a little better she about is in this the area. is that apparently everyone keeps thinking, oh, the woman in the floppy hat or the woman with the blonde wig. Boots, a floppy hat, and a blonde wig was not uncommon. That was actually very fashion forward then. It was a, a that would be like you know seeing seeing a girl walking outside right now in UGG boots. Like, <laughs> but we're talking about you know it was like four o'clock in the morning, and in that close proximity to the house. So that's why it kind of knows. But at you me. can't really find. I couldn't nail down the exact location. You obviously it's in the vicinity because he said he was close, but again, that's only one person's testimony. It doesn't throw out all of the other evidence. So I watched um, "False Witness," I believe was the name of it, a, a documentary. I was able to find mm-hmm. it on YouTube, um, and they actually talked to this MP. And if I'm recalling correctly, he says it was around the corner. Maybe I. I so watched, it was like basic, um, you know, it was right outside of the house yeah. that he's seeing. A wilderness of error. That eight part documentary. That one heavily goes into um, Helena Stokely as well. Mm-hmm. But I just... She really is unreliable. And Well, absolutely. We have to take into consideration, just like with the John JonBenet Ramsey case, all of these crazy people that came forward and confessed to this crime. Well, yeah, and that's there the thing is... There are crazies out there, and she's one of them. Because her confessions 
if I thought you were a more reliable witness would be something that mm-hmm. that bothered me. But they don't as much as these other people. Yeah. Well, there's you know, only so like, one other person that actually places her anywhere. In well, there's the, the MP, and then isn't there also like a delivery driver? So the delivery driver, William Posey, is the one that says that he thinks it's her, it's a neighbor, but he didn't see her. The only person that like placed her there was... Oh, no, no, yeah. Right. So the delivery driver had just seen her in similar clothes at some point, yes. which again plays back she'd into... And talking about it and stuff like that. Again, these people are testifying to what she's told them. So that goes on her. This isn't stuff that people have seen themselves or anything right. like that. This is based on what she has to say. And yeah, like I said, I mean, crazy people confess to things like that. I just right. Can't and like it. I said, the confessions oh. aren't really something that that bugs me a lot. But and this MP saying that he saw a woman fitting that description in pretty close proximity to the house at four a.m. the same day that. That bugs me. Another huge thing for me, though, is that the motive that she'd given, she doesn't name other people. Well, I think maybe back and forth she may have named other people that had been with her, but it never, like, no one has definitely, definitively been named as another suspect other than her boyfriend, Greg Mitchell. But... Well, there's the, the one, uh, the black male... Oh, I can't remember the name because he wasn't really no. She like, said that there center, was but... a, that she had a black friend that came and smoked with her occasionally. Well, and there was the cop, I guess, that worked with her as an informant. Yeah, was familiar with the boyfriend and yeah, this black male was, that would be with them. I think Princely was his name. A huge thing for me, because obviously, when you have a confession, that's going to be like, well, someone confessed to this. Like, you know, we can't convict a man if someone is, you know, until we, you know, really look into this, but. Jeffrey McDonald never mentioned any of this stuff with the drugs. He never mentioned it. He never mentioned knowing or recognizing any of the intruders in right. his home. And if the motive, the drug thing was the motive, then at some point in time he would have seen one of these people. Right. He never mentioned any of that. And not only that, but Helena Stokely had said, well, in one of her renditions of this crime, she said that they were retaliating against him and they spared his life because they, they will spare your life if you give us the drugs. Well, and I, he'd I, never I, given them any drugs. And there was also another account where she said that they kept him alive because it would be worse for him to live, knowing what had happened to his wife and daughters. Well, and I having agree with that. Yeah, but then for them to kill him, I suppose, which seems like too deep a thought for people that are that you know, using drugs that heavily, that's strung out on LSD. Yeah, um, seems a little much. You know, so then just for the sake of being able to talk some of this stuff out still, um, Jeffrey McDonald saying acid is groovy, kill the pigs is what he heard her chanting. Helena Stokely, in her accounts, says something very similar is what she was like saying while they were there. In one of the accounts yeah. where she's not claiming, I don't remember where I was, where she says she was in the house. But when you look at that magazine article... And you know how highly publicized all of that was at that time. I think that yeah, not only kind of dissolves. That was something that Jeffrey McDonald repeated over and over again. It's just the same. Right, Everybody knew about the lady in the floppy hat. Everybody knew about the acid is groovy. That's common knowledge. This is the same thing with the John Bonet thing. Like them knowing details about the case. It was publicized. It's pictures. Right. They knew that. And then just so another couple of things, but a lot of this has come out 
since then with advancements in technology, obviously, mm-hmm. um, like the fibers, because we made a lot of mention to where fibers were found. And there were so there's a lot of argument that the fibers are consistent with the pajama top, but there's no definitive. And then there have actually been people who looked at those fibers and said, well, they're, they're not even the same color as the pajama top. And there are some who say they're not even the same material as the pajama yeah, top. Yeah, I haven't read any of, of that. But, but I wouldn't say, though, just because those fibers exist, you know, even if they're not from the pajama top, doesn't mean that he didn't do it. We don't know what else was going yeah. on, what else he may have been wearing I also don't think the the fiber evidence is as big a deal as everyone makes it out to be because I'm thinking, well, yeah, his pajama... They mentioned that the the pajamas are well-worn. Right. Been washed. Yeah, this wasn't some brand new pair of pajamas. There are going to be fibers in his daughter's bedrooms. I'm sure he put them to bed every night. There's going to be fibers in his bed that he shares with his wife. That, to me, isn't a huge deal. The cluster of fibers found in the master bedroom is. Right. I feel like that's indicative of the pajama top being torn in the bedroom rather than the struggle in the but living that's room. Again, but that's assuming that it's the pajama top that was torn there. But I'm, what I'm saying is, even though, you know, I could see questions being raised if they're able to say, because I, I saw something that, you know, these are actually black fibers. They're not even, they're mm. not this, like, light blue color that the pajamas were. But who's to say what that could have come from then? You don't have anything definitive that says this is where this came from. Yeah, but even if you... That would rule out Jeffrey McDonald. There's still so much more evidence, though, where even if there were no fibers at all, you still have plenty of evidence to convict him. Even the circumstantial things like, how likely is it? I'd heard this in a documentary as well that I think rings true. How likely is it for intruders to drop their weapons underneath a bush right outside the door right next to each other? You would think if you're running outside of a house, you're going to fling it or throw it. Or uh, take it with you. Right, exactly. And not only that, and destroy but it somewhere else again, or, yeah. how many people go to, a, to commit a murder without a weapon? Mm-hmm. You know, and all of the weapons can be connected to the McDonald house. That, I mean... That's another thing that that points to McDonald. And another thing for me specifically, some changes in his story I understand. When you go on these pages and there's a site that I had already mentioned before, the McDonaldCase.com, there's another one. It's the JeffreyMcDonaldCase.com, which is run by, um, I believe, a correspondent of the Kassab family. And they have on there a very detailed list of claims versus facts. And a lot of them detail the inconsistencies in Jeffrey McDonald's accounts. Mm-hmm. The timing, like that Colette had returned home at 940 instead of 950. Who cares? Like, who cares? Right. There are some things where, for me personally, you might forget someone's eye color or whether or not they had a beard. In my opinion... I don't think I could forget the gender of somebody that was an intruder or their ethnicity. Well, the argument there, I think, that I'll give is if his version of events were true, Mm -hmm. then you're being woken up, so you're going to be disoriented, and you're focusing on these terrible things that have happened to your family Mm -hmm. as opposed to that. And again, it's like, how are you going to react in that situation? We really don't know that for sure. If you're disoriented because you were sleeping. But he's able to describe a short, like he can describe their height and what they're wearing. But he gives an account where it's actually two black men and a white man. Mm -hmm. 
how do you how do you go and change it from two two white men and a black man to two black men and a white man how do you just change one man's ethnicity right. like that that seems that seems odd to me i agree the same thing yeah when like i said race and gender i don't think is something that you can just change well, especially the, when you're giving so much detail on what they're wearing and like their height and their build the gender thing i think i'm a little bit more willing to be understanding of because he does think it could have been a wig and things like that and with yes, being disoriented yes. but uh obviously you know I'll, i'm just I'll saying in general those are two things for me personally right where i don't think i would be like Oh, I changed my mind. It was a man, not a woman, that walked into my house and killed my family. No. Right. You know, I wouldn't... Yeah, it just... But there's also... There's just a lot of shady people, and so many people's stories are so inconsistent, it just kind of nags at me like something's going on here. Like we talked about with the babysitter. She has some accounts where she says, I'd never seen an ice pick in the house. Then she has accounts where she says, oh, I had to use the ice pick all of the time to get ice off of popsicles for the girls because the freezer was too cold. Now, outside testimony, I don't give I don't give as much weight to other people as I do to Jeffrey McDonald's right. testimony. But I'm just trying they to... They may if have we're... motive behind it as well. She might have been on his side and then turned. And people lie. And people want to remember things that are obviously going to make their version of events true. And I just think, though, that Jeffrey McDonald's inconsistencies were big enough. And I, I'd heard, I had listened to an attorney on YouTube go into detail about his opinion, and he'd said, and I, I wish I could get his name, I probably could. Um, he basically mentioned, if Jeffrey McDonald is lying to the police, then he committed this crime. Right. Because why would you lie to the police? And he did on multiple occasions. Right. And I kind of like, I don't know, that just really, that really stuck out to me. Because you're right. Why would he lie to the police if he didn't do it? There's no yeah. reason to. There's no reason but to make when you, But if you want to look about, you know, like, if they're lying, then there's something wrong here. You have to look at the testimony from these other witnesses, though, that changes a lot, too. And so that's the problem, is there were a lot of issues with the prosecution. Mm. You know, we've gone over at length the issues with the defense mm -hmm. and the defendant. But when you have people testifying, like they had the forensic expert that testifies about the bloody footprint, for instance. And so when he's on the stand at trial, he's trying to be very definitive. This is Jeffrey McDonald's footprint. You know, this is the blood that we see there and blah, blah. But then when you see other analysis of it, they say... You know, this looks like it could have been... McDonald at one point tried to hop off of the stretcher after they had put him on it. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, he may have just stepped in the blood and it's just a transfer. Because it's just the one footprint. There's not multiple steps. Like you had walked through a puddle of blood. You may have stepped in blood on the carpet and then it's just a transfer. Then you also have that forensic expert who's up there testifying about the bloody footprint is confronted with his own statements from the time of the crime where he could not definitively say that this was Jeffrey McDonald. His reports were very careful to say it's consistent with the size of his foot, with his weight, mm -hmm. and those types of things. And then on the stand, he's saying it's Jeffrey McDonald's footprint. 
why embellish? You're careful in the report for the same reason mm-hmm. you should be careful when you're testifying on the stand. So why are you using more superlative and definite language at trial than you did when you did the analysis nine years ago? Now, in the jury instruction, it does say that the jurors can use their personal discretion to decide whether or not they feel a person's testimony is accurate. They're allowed to give different weights to different people's testimony. Um, But I think that the confirmed physical evidence and the discrepancies in Jeffrey McDonald's story, um, I will take into account his behavior. For such a big family man that, you know, did I mean, he certainly was kind of a scumbag during his marriage, after his family died. He, he was. That doesn't make him a murderer, but it adds to it. Uh, also, quick note, Richard Dwyer is the name of the attorney that I watched on YouTube. Um, <laughs> he's uh, made a few episodes giving his opinion. Uh, he's just a guy that sits in his, his chair. He's a civil law attorney, um, and he does actually quite a few cases giving his opinion, so you guys should check him out. Um, yeah, I just... I think he did it. I don't necessarily agree wholeheartedly with the prosecution's theory. I do think that they were probably fighting. And not only are there a lot of comparisons between this and the Manson murders, but think to the most recent case we have like this, the familicide of the Watts family. Chris Watts annihilated his pregnant wife. He had a wife, two toddler daughters, and his wife was pregnant with their first son. Mm. I mean that it's eerily similar to this case. Right. And he showed absolutely no violent behavior whatsoever. And he snapped. So it's not, you know, it's not like this doesn't happen. Right. And I think that they had a good life. Yes. I agree with him thinking, I think when he says, why would I do this? I was, you know, in the best time of He's my really life. He's really asking right? himself. I really do think so because I think that he didn't mean to do it. Well, and I'm sorry, but when you say, oh, you guys are more thorough than I thought. Yeah. When they point out that they know you're having an affair, when you're trying to paint this picture perfect mm-hmm. portrait of a family. Yeah. I mean, my gut right from the beginning, before I did any type of research on this and was just very shallowly familiar with the case, your gut tells you that this guy did it. Nothing else really makes a ton of sense. When I was doing a little bit of the research, like I said, there's just these little things that kind of nag at me. Like, this military police officer doesn't have any reason that I can find Mm -hmm. to lie about having seen someone fitting this description outside of the house at 4 a.m. And that's odd. Is that enough for me to constitute reasonable doubt and then not vote guilty? No. Right. Because you like you said... that versus a mountain of other evidence. Right. And this is one of, you know, we've talked about this privately, but, you know, where the case is largely circumstantial evidence. Mm-hmm. Because as far as physical evidence that ties directly to Jeffrey McDonald, there's not a lot. I don't know. I the think blood and stuff of... is physical evidence, but that doesn't tie directly to Jeffrey McDonald. All that does is kind of lay out a sequence of events... That they can then make fit with a narrative that makes sense with Jeffrey McDonald. Yeah, but but it's largely circumstantial. Circumstantial is weighs just as heavily as physical evidence. Well, that would be up to And that is in the jury instruction. I read it specifically. 
It says in there that the circumstantial evidence is just as important as the physical evidence. It holds the same weight. I read it in the juror instructions. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't know that people would always be able to see it that way. Because I don't see it that way. But here's the thing. Not that I disregard circumstantial evidence. It's because we, as a community now, we're so used to having physical evidence because we have all of this technology But one piece of physical evidence can be just as damning as one piece of circumstantial evidence. Because think about it. Like I've said in in our previous episodes, you're on camera committing a crime. Or like you're on, you know what I mean? But there's no physical evidence to tie you there. That's circumstantial. But just because they find someone else's fingerprint. That video of you committing the crime is physical evidence. Well, let's say that they find receipts or... They have 20 witnesses that put you at the crime scene, but they have someone else's bloody fingerprint there. Well, is that one fingerprint going to throw out your entire case when they have all of this other circumstantial evidence against you? It can go both ways. Right. One piece of circumstantial evidence isn't going to throw out physical evidence, and one piece of physical evidence can't throw out an entire circumstantial case. And there is a ton of circumstantial evidence. I think that I do think that one piece of physical evidence that will not fit could be enough to throw away a house of cards built on circumstantial evidence. That's not what happened in this case. I don't know. But I'm saying if you have if everything you have against your defendant is circumstantial and the one hard piece of evidence you have points in a completely different direction, that's what reasonable doubt is. In this case, you know, in this case that's not what happened. He still claims to this day that he wakes up to his wife and his daughter screaming for him. Mm-hmm. They are being attacked. At the same time he is being attacked, he only ever says that there are a maximum of four people in his home. How is he being attacked by the three men and then sees the female in one room in the living room? Who is attacking his wife and daughter? And well, he they, maintains that that's what happened when he woke up to this But I think you can make day. the argument they don't have to be being actively attacked to be screaming for help. If the attacks had begun... But those are his version of events, though. No, no, but... Well, no, because then his version of events is that he's knocked unconscious and wakes up sometime later and then finds them dead. So there, it could still fit. I, under, I understand uh. what you're saying, but if you... Really, try, if you try and, to look in the light most favorable to Jeffrey McDonald, which I'm not saying he deserves, but just for this intellectual exercise, they could have been screaming for help because the attacks had begun. They don't have to necessarily be actively well, being that's attacked. Fine, but it also doesn't describe the lack of mess in the living room. No, it doesn't. When you have five adults right. fighting, you have a female and four males fighting and Jeffrey fighting for his life in a living room, and you have a knocked-over coffee table and a plant holder. Mind you, there are Valentine's Day cards on the top that are not moved. Lamps are still there, like you'd mentioned. It just... His version of events aren't right. No, it doesn't fit. I'm not arguing. I'm not arguing that it does fit, but when you try to look very specifically at certain little things, there are ways to explain them. Because you have to remember, mm. we're agreeing here that this guy did it and that we would have convicted him. So I'm just trying to kind of play devil's advocate so that we can talk through can some of these finer say points. There's not a single piece of evidence that makes me question it at all. I told you the real, the one thing 
that nags at me, and this is why I said it's not enough for me to feel like that's a reasonable doubt, is hearing myself and seeing this MP say, I saw someone who fits that exact description outside of the house when I was going to the scene. I suppose, but then I don't know where the other three people are supposed to be. Right. No, no, there's still questions there. Oh, another huge thing. It was pouring that night. Mm Mm-hmm. There are no, there's no mud, there's no water, there's no, like, boot prints, shoe prints, Well, again, though, he was knocked unconscious, woke up sometime later, so how, how wet would their shoes have been? But there's no mud? Well, you don't, we don't, I don't. There's no mud, there's no dirt? I didn't look at specific pictures to see what it looks like for them to come in. I can't imagine that there wasn't a way for them to get there without and mud on their shoes. He describes, He had to have had a sidewalk. Well, he describes her boots as being soaked. So there would have been But boot not prints. muddy, just wet. They would have been dirtied. We don't know that. If they're walking on pavement, they can be wet and still be clean. And if they're depending on what this mm. time lapse is when he's knocked unconscious and wakes up, again, just for the purpose of being able to like look into this stuff, it's possible that we're not going to have muddy footprints everywhere just because it was raining. Yeah, but you're outside. still go- you're going to have dirt and you're going to have impressions because not everybody's shoes are clean. You'd have you would have something. And I'm not disagreeing with you that there should that, be something if there were other people in the and house. And they had found some tiny little candle wax stains. Well, they had matched. One of them to a birthday candle, and the other ones had matched drippings from candles that they had at a table. And if you, this woman is supposed to be carrying around this melting candle, right. there are no concentrated candle wax stains in the living room. It just... His story is a lie. Yeah. And he still sticks to it to this day. It's a, it's a lie. Which is funny, because he's already changed it so many times before. Mm-hmm. And, and like the parts we mentioned, that he stick to are the ones that don't make sense. <laughs> and like we mentioned, he reacted to physical evidence and then tried to tweak his story to make that physical evidence mm-hmm. fit. That and he lies about his injuries on live television. He embellishes everything, which I, not doesn't make him guilty of murder. He just is a, you know. He makes you feel icky? He just embellishes everything. <laughs> he, yeah. I, um, yeah, I think he did it. Yeah, me too. I mean, I know he did it. There's, there's nothing that makes me question it at all. Um, I do feel bad for him a little bit. I oh, do. I don't. He really did have everything. He had everything going for him, and he really had the personality, the know-how, and the determination to have a really good life. Um, and I think in a, I don't think he moment, had the personality. I don't know. In a, he's in a, a moment, very self-absorbed, he destroyed it. selfish, vain shallow person i could see that had they been arguing and obviously if she threw something at him that or maybe she'd threatened to leave him which is a huge thing like when you threaten to leave you see that a lot in like family annihilations um that that will incite violence and i could see him hitting colette and that i wouldn't necessarily say i could forgive but i could see and say serve your time whatever the one thing that is absolutely unforgivable is that he then went all of those extra steps to mutilate them and kill his children. Well, because you would think that a normal human being, even if you fly into a rage over something she said or something she's done, 
when you see your five-year-old daughter in the doorway to your bedroom see you hit Mm -hmm. or stab or whatever your wife that that would snap you out of whatever that was Mm. you'd lose whatever that rage was that was making you so irrational because this is your five-year-old daughter Mm -hmm. that's standing in the doorway. Why would you want to do that in front of her? And then to do it to her and to your two-year-old who, based on all of the evidence, never got out of bed. Mm -hmm. So you went, you know, following... Following the blood spatter, you know, all of that evidence, it seems like Colette went in there trying to maybe get Kristen out of the house. Jeffrey catches her in there, takes her back out of the room, but then goes back into Kristen, who probably is still awake in bed, startled by being, you know, at two years old, woken up by your mother in the middle of the well, night. she's probably scared in her right. bed. And that explains all of the defensive wounds mm. on your two-year-old. I just don't see how you could get to a point where none of that snaps you out of it. Yeah, there are other things, too, even after that, though. Who washes their hands before calling the police? A surgeon. I don't think so. I think that the lack of blood on the phone, the fact that he admits to have washing, like washing his hands twice... I mean, well, and we need to call back to to the wound that he had the the only serious injury, even though it still wasn't life threatening. Mm. Remember that clean, yeah, and sharp, mm. and you know, and the, uh, there's a lot of argument that he did that with a scalpel because it was only five eighths of an yeah. inch. But that's again, that's surgical only... precision, and that's understanding medical procedure, knowing that I can do this. It's going to seem serious. But my life isn't going to be in danger because it's fast enough. That's the only piece, though, that made me think twice. That was the only piece of evidence. That wound? Yep. Oh, see, that wound never made me think twice. Only because... It solidified to me that he had done this to himself because it was too precise. To do that right between two ribs, Mm -hmm. partially collapse a lung, but never have your life actually threatened... You would have to understand those procedures. And he, well, went, he went into emergency medicine. He probably already had some familiarity. Yeah, th- those are the pieces that make me go, okay, okay. But then there was one part to it where all of these physicians, all of them, testified that there was no certainty in that. That he could have caused more damage. That just a slight breath would change the position of the liver and that could have been fatal. Mm. I guess that's a risk that he was willing to take, but it did give me pause. Just, but he would be aware of that. Yeah, yeah. And would I mean, be and careful, I, probably, I you know, hold, hold your breath, that, like, stand a certain way. Yeah, and and he had, the thing is, is that I don't necessarily know that these, you know, criminals would walk into his house and know where he keeps his surgical gloves and things, because he did have a closet with those items in it. Yeah, there was um, a cabinet He did say there was a, a pair, though, that gloves. was laying on the counter or something, but, you know... They had to pull all. They would have. They had to pull all of the weapons from. Yeah, the didn't house. he claim that the he gloves. had used the surgical gloves when he was washing the dishes, and that's why there was a pair on the counter. He says he can't recall that he could have used the surgical gloves or he could have used the yellow dish gloves yeah. that his wife had. But now we're getting into like the nitty gritty. We both think he did it. Yeah, we both would have voted guilty. He should be right where he is. Yeah, he deserves to. They be should where continue he is. to deny his parole. Yeah, he he deserves to be where he is. So that's that. That is that, and that is a wrap on another. Lengthy episode yep. of Allegedly. Yep. Next week's episode will not, not be no, as lengthy. Probably won't even be half as long as this one. It will be... Uh, it's a more high-profile mm-hmm. case. I mean, Jeffrey McDonald, I think, is pretty high-profile, but I'm inside of the true it crime community. It was in the time, yeah. Um, 
this this case I think uh, that we're going to be covering next week is probably a little bit more recognizable to a wider audience. Maybe. We'll see. But it won't be as long. Nope. It is very interesting. Um, we've yeah. got a lot of information on the victim yeah, the de- in this next one. The details about the people involved in the crime are more interesting than the crime itself. Yeah, actually. that's it's true. Like, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's going to be another husband uh, killing his wife, maybe, allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> so that's that. Yeah, uh, don't forget, tuned. rate, review, subscribe. Do all the things. And uh, we'll see you next week, guys. Yeah. Bye. Bye.